four, three, two, one. I think I've pretty much nailed that. <sighs> Seven out of ten. It's a, it's, well, we've had a week off, you know. We are, used yeah. to running the live, doing the live video production. On our holidays. <laughs> I know, I've been on holidays. Right. Hello, Phil Common, Bienvenue, Konnichiwa, Ni Hao, Jambo, Marhaba, Ave. Bonjour. It's time for the Armin's Inquisition. Yet again, episode 205 on yeah. Saturday the 30th of October. I'm Armish Phil. I'm Armish Ben. And I'm Armish Matt. The dwarf, the cripple, and the mother of madness. And uh, this week we're joined by Mark Selleck from Casting Through Ancient Greece podcast. How are you doing, Mark? <coughs> it helps if I turn your volume on. <laughs> Sorry, say again. Say again, Mark. I'm doing well, guys. Um, how are you guys going? Yeah, good, thank you. Really yeah. well. Yeah, rested. Y- you usually <laughs> say fair to middling. I do, but today I'm really well. And, yeah, he's you been know, awful, pleased to he? Pleased to be sharing that status with, uh, with all and sundry. Well, it's been it's good to have you here, Mark. We um, this was um, our mutual friend Steve Steve Whitehead's. Um, I think he commented on a tweet or something and said, "Oh, you need to hook up with Mark and talk about ancient Greece." Mm. Like, uh, yeah, we like Absolutely. it. We like ancient history here. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, what's what's the crack with the casting <laughs> casting through ancient Greece? I mean, it's such a massive thing. Are you doing sort of like? Um, a timeline? Are you starting at the beginning of the story and going through chronologically? Or if you, if you go, got more of a sort of anthology approach where you're picking different parts of the culture and doing an episode on, you know, religion or warfare or what? How? what's your sort of uh, process? Um, yeah, so you, you're right. It's like a massive undertaking. Um, and before I even started, I, I spent ages stewing over what to where to even begin and what to do. But, um, yeah, I decided to go with a chronological um, sort of narrative and I basically went all the way back to the the start of, I guess, early human history in Greece yeah. and um, moved my way forward. Obviously, I'm only spending, uh, well, spent a brief time on those sorts of subjects since there's not too much information around them. But, um, yeah, I just moved forward and start looking at the developments through the Bronze Age, heading into the Dark Ages and then... I guess the, the rebirth through the archaic age. And I spent a bit of time looking at uh, the different, uh, I guess our main players like Athens and Sparta and even uh, Persia. Cause I start setting up for the Greek and Persian wars. And that's about in the show. I'm about, I've just reached the end of the Greek and Persian wars. And now I'm sort of just doing a bit of a survey of um, uh, the Greek periphery, I guess, looking at um, places like Sicily and Macedon, just looking at their early history, where they've come from. But yeah, the main, I guess, bulk of the um, series so far has been centered around the Greek and Persian Wars. Is there a definitive end to the ancient Greek period where it becomes modern Greece? Um, or do you just define that yourself? Like, I've, I'm going to stop here and and the rest is um, not history. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, initially when I first started out, I think in my introduction uh, episode, I stated that I was going to sort of take it up to about the death of Alexander. But yeah. I think I'm going to be going beyond that now. Perhaps 
in my in my head, I guess maybe up to the Roman uh, conquest or something like that, okay. where it starts becoming part of the Roman Empire and ceases being, I guess, its own entity. Right. Oh, that makes sense. I, I have no real knowledge of of that sort of thing. Fills fills your man really for ancient. <laughs> certainly, well, certainly not. You meant you mentioned about the starts. I mean, how far have you traced back? Sort of, have you gone sort of into the Stone Age to, to sort of trace back the early human settlements in Greece? Um, yeah, so I spent, I guess, one of my first episodes was just looking at, um, I called it Greek before history, and um, it just looks at early human habitation like Neanderthals, uh, Homo sapiens coming into Greece. Um, there's, a, there's a cave uh, called Franchithi, and it's down on the Peloponnese. And they've been able to track human habitation uh, down in that location, I think, for near on 30,000 years nonstop. And, um, yeah, that's sort of, I guess, one of the early early places where you see a lot of uh, Homo sapiens especially. And um, you can sort of track uh, how the, the geography around the regions change, where their diets change because the sea comes in closer to the land and, and things like that. So do, how are the, is this through carbon dating of burials or is this sort of cultural artifacts? Because when you think, when you say 30,000 years ago, I start thinking about like the Lascaux caves in Spain and in and, and that sort of area, we've, we've got like artwork from that sort of day. Yep. Is, is there something similar happening in Greece at the same time or is it a different kind of evidence? Yeah, for, uh, so I think uh, some has been carbon dated and then obviously in the different layers, they're able to associate um, different layers with, with dates because of the dating that they've done. Um, and from my understanding, these cultures are, I guess, similar to uh, the culture that you see sort of sweep through Europe um, that, that involves those caves. And you see that the same sort of um, people sweeping into, I think, Sicily and, and to the southern parts of Europe as well. It's, it's, you just wonder. <laughs> you just wonder how people coped in those days with so much. Oh, it would have been. Sorry, go on. Yep, I was just saying. Yes, it would have been a very, very tough life, um, and um, dealing with all the elements and and the dangers because you had quite a different, uh, I guess, uh, plethora of uh, wild animals around the region, mountain lions and things like that. Right. But, well, um, this is this is before the the mass extinction at the end of the last ice age. So we've got like big saber tooth cats, yeah, short faced cave bears, giant armadillos. I mean, everything's just massive, isn't it? Yeah, dragons. <laughs> you know, and we're like we're such a weak species in com- in comparison. Mm-hmm. Everything else kills things with their face. Mm-hmm. And we're just sort of, our sort of, we have brain power and we have endurance. And that's about all we have, isn't that's it? That's all I've got, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was just going to ask as well, you know, you sort of said that the uh, the uh, coastline, sort of the sea encroached, then did you say towards that, yeah. that kind of uh, level of the land or whatever? Um, I w- when I've sort of been reading around sort of, um, I suppose, prehistory and stuff in that kind of region was i don't know if you've come across this was the actual um climate different as well so um i've kind of read that it was a little bit more greener not quite as um hot or uh, more rainfall and things like that i don't know if that's something that you've kind of um Um, read about yeah so from my understanding especially when you're looking back before the um i guess the, the coming out of the ice age 
the climate seems to be a lot more um, volatile. Mm-hmm. So even though you're probably talking about now, you know, another 20,000 years, but even over that time you would have had ups and downs um, with climate changing. And I think this has to do with why a lot of the vegetation around the area was changing. Mm-hmm. And they can see um, different wildlife entering into the equation just based on what was now coming into the area or perhaps what was being driven out by the different um, fluctuations in, in temperature over the, uh, the years. Yeah. So, I mean, like that was something I've been listening to uh, um, Steve's podcast quite a lot and he's, I'm just onto one. He was talking about sort of like the, the Bronze Age collapse and, you know, sort of all the different things that were going on in terms of like, um, there's, a, there's another kind of reference in that you're changing the climate and um, evidence that sort of like the Mediterranean Sea temperature like decreased and things like that from core samples um, and just like the influence that that had on um, sort of like the civilizations around there. So when... I suppose when was like the the um, the first time that people got together and and could be kind of classified as a a civilization then in in Greece or in that kind of region? Uh, when did settlements sort of start? Yeah. Um, well, so I guess a, a recognizable civilization uh, first comes about when we look at the Mycenaean Greeks. So the Greeks are the, the Bronze Age. Yeah. Now there would have been there would have been settlements before that, but. This is when we start to see a more shared culture and, um, and more recognisable languages and, and cultures that are shared throughout the regions. Um, and obviously this was back before the Bronze Age collapse um, sort of uh, things he's talking about. Mm-hmm. Uh, interesting, I actually just spoke to Eric Klein, who wrote his book, 1177 BC. The big yeah. dog. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I noticed you guys have spoken to him as well. Yeah. 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 Um, but yeah, so I just spoke to him about uh, a lot of this sort of stuff a couple of weeks ago. And, um, yeah, it's, it's very interesting to see how, um, I guess the climate became a lot drier and that was the sea temperatures were drawing up a lot less, um, precipitation and, um, yeah, which would have affected crops and whatever else. I think, um, Eric even points to, in a lot of caves, they find, uh, the uh, static mites stop growing as well, just because of the uh, reduced rainfall. Oh, wow. wow. I mean, yeah, but sorry, go on. We can say something then. Um, no, I was just, yeah, just finishing up that thought, but yeah. Mm. No, I was just going to say, um, so when does now this is, uh, I've not listened to the second part of Steve's uh bronze age collapse thing, but when have we talked about the Sodom thing and the airburst potential? Is that a different time? Sodom and Gomorrah, uh, I mean, I would have thought that would have been later was it later but i don't oh, okay. know correct correct me if i'm wrong i don't know are you are you kind of familiar um, with this this kind of this I've, I've heard of it i i um i thought it was a um an earlier so right, i guess okay. the bronze age collapse we're looking um around 1200 bc mm-hmm. um and from my understanding the whole sodom gomorrah would have been earlier I right think. okay yeah i mean I've, I've read you've got like solomon at around 900 so it's got to be earlier, hasn't it, Mark? It has to be. Yeah, I, I always thought um, people tried to connect it to um, comets and, and things like that that were hitting the Earth. But um, mm. I'm not I'm not full bottled on uh, when that when that was occurring. Right. Okay. And it's so sketchy because you know we're pretty much reliant on the one text for dating when it comes to Sodom and Gomorrah, aren't we? <laughs> and there are yeah. lots of you know it's a controversial subject. When it, I, I was quite. You know, I really love talking to Eric about 
the historicity of the Bible and the Old Testament and stuff. And we did the same with David Rowland and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, uh, it's hard to get um, secondary texts or secondary evidence to corroborate these sort of things. I mean, Eric mentioned that, um, that I don't know whether it's a, not a plaque, but a carving that, that said the House of David. Mm. That was around the same period that King David would have been alive. So there's sort of there's corroborating evidence, but this this stuff is happening so long ago, and we have such a dearth of supporting literature, literary evidence. Because again, we're, we're, a lot of this, not David, but Solomon Gomorrah, is happening before the Bronze Age collapse. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's mentioned, isn't it? I mean, I'm trying to think about the earliest mentions of the Israelites, but then you're going into sort of like the Egyptian records and stuff, and you just get to this point where it just, it just boggles your mind. You, you, you end up chasing your tail and, and just getting completely confused because you're having to draw from all these different kind of sources to try and patch like patchwork together some timeline of events because this is why we're here, Mark. It's because we're interested in our story, our our story of humanity. Where do we come from? Why are we here? What's what's happened before us? And we're all just interested in the truth and accuracy and trying to figure it out. And it's so difficult when you've got this lack of textual evidence, isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah, it's um, I think it's a big attraction to history, especially ancient history. You've just got so many unknowns and trying to, to track down um, some semblance of truth or or even just so I find it interesting just trying to hypothesize about things, even though it may not be entirely accurate, it's still uh, a worthwhile exercise. And yeah, going back to the the Israelites and the Egyptians that you're talking about, I mean, we even have um, evidence that's starting to emerge that the Philistines were actually um, a lot of the Mycenaean Greeks who had um, come out of Greece after the collapse of the Bronze Age. And um, Eric spoke a bit about that as well, how they're finding... Um, a lot of Mycenaean pottery in a bunch of um, cities down in the Levant that all date to the same period and are recognised as Mycenaean. And I think even lately um, there's genome testing that's been done that's been able to connect a lot of the uh, um, what they the, the Philistines, um, well, I think in a number of cases, maybe I think there's five different samples, but they've been able to connect them to the actual um, perhaps Mycenaeans or uh, people coming from the Aegean anyway. Yeah, it's uh, it's this story, isn't it? It's so hard to get your head around. And uh, you mentioned, yeah. um, sorry, I forgot what I was going to say then about um, <laughs> Mycenaeans, because um, you were talking about like what's the history of of the first settlements, and mm-hmm. we go back to Mycenae. But this this isn't like um, a primitive civilization. That's what I mean. Yeah, yeah we, we have this entire network around the Mediterranean. It's not, you know, they're all interconnected via trade, via diplomacy, intermarrying. They're all dependent on each other and separate. And so if you just stick to Greece, there must have been a, a chain of settlements before that, probably going back thousands of years, uh, getting ever oh. more sort of sophisticated and hierarchical. Yeah, absolutely. And that, and that's where it becomes difficult to track them. When you don't have a, a recognisable civilization. you're, I mean, you've got so many holes in, in the story and it's just, you know, you can look at one settlement, but it may not um, give you the entire picture because another settlement over the, the hill could be completely different at the time. 
And I think it's when it's these shared ideas become um, ingrained and entangled, that's when you start seeing something that becomes more recognisable. And, I mean, even the Mycenaeans, they think, I think they only really sort of came, um, started becoming recognisable around 18 to 1700 BC when we could really start seeing them form as a civilization, and they appeared to have taken on aspects of the Minoans, who were another, I guess, precursor to the ancient Greeks as well, Seafaring. and Egyptian culture, hmm. and um, who the Mycenaeans would end up basically um, absolving into their, their civilization. Yeah, it's only when a civilization becomes so distinct that it sort of sticks out like a sore thumb. Like you can say, oh, yeah. there is something happened, something unique, something that hasn't happened before, that has certain signatures or cultural markers that sort of distinguishes it because we, because we we don't have writing, you know. Apart from, I guess, I guess in Egypt we do, but it's it's hieroglyphics and it's not like <laughs> it's not like a modern text. It's, I mean, people still argue about what hieroglyphics mean. Never, you know, despite Champollion and. Um, the what's it stone? What's it called? Rosetta stone. Rosetta stone, Rosetta stone and that. There's, there's still a lot of arguments about what the actual meanings of hieroglyphics are because they have this sort of sacred, mm. uh, ritual, religious um, aspect to them. But wasn't there, I'm, I'm sure yeah. I've heard. Is there not kind of some kind of shared cubiform language? Cuneiform. Cubiform. Cuneiform. <laughs> yeah. Cuneiform. Yeah. That's, that, it, yeah. that, that a lot of the societies used or something. I'm sure there was, wasn't there? Yeah. So there was cuneiform over in the, the Near East yeah. where they would use to record different languages. Mm-hmm. Um, in Greece itself, you had a couple of languages. So the Minoans used what they title Linear A and the Mycenaeans used what's called Linear B. Catchy. Um, <laughs> pretty pretty original naming, but... Um, <laughs> Uh, it's a, and both, no one could read them until uh, linear A is still a bit of a mystery. Um, no one's been able to de- decipher it properly yet. Right. But um, linear B, which came to replace uh, linear A, which is coincides with the Minoans uh, being taken over by Mycenaeans, and um, I think it was nineteen. It was just after World War Two. Um, a code breaker was able to actually. Um, decipher linear b where they could start reading the tablets wow. and um but they're not extravagant stories or mm. or anything like that they're more inventories of <laughs> storehouses and and uh, whatnot there was no real uh, nothing that's told any great epic story or poem or whatever else mm-hmm. so i mean doesn't that kind of point towards um sort of like an oral tradition then um and then i suppose it was kind of so was it someone's job to kind of remember these kinds of stories and myths and then um tell other people about them and all the rest of it yeah so i think yeah i think um the whole oral tradition and especially we see a lot more of it when we recognize homer the epic poet Mm -hmm. and whatever else but when looking back further like into the bronze age it's you know it's assumed that obviously if you're going to transmit stories you're going to need people to be able to to recount them tell them i've no doubt there would have been perhaps official storytellers, but I would have uh, assumed that there would have been, um, especially elders within communities, would have been recounting tales of old. And um, this is what it would have passed down. And and the stories change, like I guess probably getting towards the, the Trojan War, those sorts of stories that came out of the Bronze Age. They would have been transferred 
you know, from generation to generation mm-hmm. um, to what we've got now written down in the Iliad and the epic cycles. But um, even those, I think, would have tra- changed dramatically. A lot of people look at them and go, you know, this is not, this didn't happen, it's not real because of this detail or whatever else. But um, I think when you're transferring oral information, it's very different to what we're used to with a literary sense where you're trying to convey meanings and stories rather than actual details and you're trying to make the story memorable so that the next generation will be able to uh, take it and pass it on. And a big part of that is making the story um, uh, something that the next generation can relate to. And I think that's where you see details change. So what you might see certain bits of armour or, or different weapons described and people go, well, they didn't exist in the Bronze Age or, or whatever else, but they're making it more relatable for the generation that they're telling it to. Uh, yeah, the context is everything. And it's the yeah. same when you're reading history. Uh, you've got to read the author. You can't just read the text. You have to understand who the author is, when is he writing, in what context <laughs> is he writing, what is his political affiliation. It's like you can't just read a historical text and take it, mm. take, take their word for it. You have to read the author as well as the text. I think with the, yeah. a lot of the oral tradition, we, we, I think we run the risk of uh, underestimating our ancestors in how good they were at, at uh, transmitting information through oral tradition because it's a muscle that we've forgotten how to use. And back in those days, before uh, literacy, literacy was common, um, telling stories around the campfire, and I believe singing, I, I think that these stories were almost certainly put to music the same way as the Welsh bards transmitted the stories of King Arthur and whatnot in the UK. And it's like, how do we teach our kids the alphabet? We don't say it's A, B, C, D, E, F, G. We say it's A, B, C, D, E, F, G. It's twinkle, uh, twinkle, little rhythm, star. Rhythm, rhythm. Rhythm, melody. It puts it in your head, and that's how you learn. That's how you remember. That's how you transmit, baby. All right. Oh, God. Is that not right? I think I'm. I think that's good. I think, no, I think you're right. right. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I'm oh, sh- and this is say, Mark. Sorry, sorry, I was just going to say, and that's exactly what they did as well. They had when they retold stories, like the epic poems, and that they're written in hexameter verse, which is oh, right. a pattern. So it's a musical pattern to basically transmit the words. And this is what helps it become more memorable as well, because you think about like what you were just saying, and even if trying to recount lines of a song, it's the same thing. Um, it becomes memorable because of those musical patterns. Right, exactly. You, you can remember lyrics from Michael Jackson's Thriller that came out 40 years ago mm-hmm. because it's tied to the melody. Did, did they have instruments back then, sort of yeah, the Bronze so Age they, period? Yeah. yeah, it's had lyres, and um, you often see the double pipes that they um, play. I've um, seen uh, people uh, recreating those pipes, Um and that's uh, just on YouTube. You can you can find those, um, and they're trying to. I've seen efforts where they've actually been trying to put the epic poems to music on those pipes, where they <laughs> wow uh, play them. But um, yeah, it's very very interesting. And I guess Hesiod tribute band. It'd be a very tough thing too, because we we don't know what they would have sounded like. So they're wow. creating it from images of of pots and. And, and other artifacts to try and get it right as well. So Wow, so um, did they even know what they were made out of? What material they were made out of? Um, I've seen some that have been made out of uh, wood, like reed, and then um, I think even bone as well. 
I want I'd want some bronze ones personally. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. If I was in the bronze age, nice polished pair of bronze pipes to play. <laughs> no one okay. anything from the bone age. No. <laughs> <laughs> so four thousand BC. <laughs> oh, so, so Neolithic man. I know, yeah. <laughs> so moving on, moving on past the bronze age. And sort of Mycenae collapses. And yes, there's, yes. There's, 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 is this where the Dark Age happens before um, classical Greece emerges? Is that, is that uh, a dark yes, age? So. <laughs> That's a Dark Age. So, and, and it's often it's also called the Iron Age. I mean, some people get hung, hung up on um, calling it the Dark Ages because um, we're getting more information about it now. But I think it still obviously shows that there was a regression in culture. So... You know, you could argue it's still a dark age because culture seems to have taken a backwards step. Um, a bit like now. A of... <laughs> yeah, a lot now, yeah. yeah. You see a lot of settlements um, disperse, um, centres become a lot less populous, and um, yeah, there's a lot less, well, there's a lot more um, space between settlements that occurred. And you've had exit, like a, especially in Greece, you've had a population shift, even exodus perhaps. And, um, then I think it spends the next couple of hundred years then starting to re-emerge. So you, you go through that, almost hits its rock bottom, um, say probably close to about uh, t- uh, 1,000 BC, somewhere around there, and then you start to see things start to um, redevelop, settlements grow again, and um, a new, I guess, political uh, identities come about where I think they um, basically 776 the dating of the Olympic Games is where they sort of give a demarcation point to where the Dark Ages end and yeah. and the archaic, like a rebirth. Because you have like an archaic age which sets in before the classical period. Do you think that space between uh, the the people is what caused the, the the Dark Age really, and that that lack of transport of these stories from place to place because people are so far apart, they're developing these isolationist sort of colonies that rise and fall without ever without ever even hearing tales or whatever from from any other place was it that that level of distance between the the um settlements at that time yeah i think they would have had something to do with it and i think um a big part of it would be because the mycenaeans were set up on such a centralized uh government as well um and that completely collapsed so their way of you know, you've had centuries of this way of life and governing that just all of a sudden disappeared and you didn't have the same um, systems in place. would have thrown the world into chaos. Everyone's uh, gone into smaller settlements and, and whatever else. And, yeah, that distance would have, I guess, reverted back to perhaps a time before we see the Mycenaeans um, uh, rising up where you have your individual communities would have their own tales. But, yeah, they wouldn't be transmitted on a, on a larger scale um, throughout Greece. Yeah. Yeah, so, like, before the Bronze Age collapse, Mycenae is a state. It's one of the Mediterranean G7, as Eric Klein calls them. It's a powerful trading state, very hierarchical, royal family sort of thing. After the collapse, when Mycenae goes away, after the Dark Age, Greece re-emerges as city-states. There's no... It doesn't have the same centralisation, does it? Because it's recovering. So you get pockets, Athens, Sparta, Corinth, wherever... And then trade routes yeah. sort of re reconnect those again. Yeah, I was just wondering then that something came to my mind. 
Um, I'm just, you know, the, the collapse of the Bronze Age, which was a lot to do with sort of like trade and um, all the rest of it. And, and bronze, is, is it made from copper and tin or something? Yeah. Um, I'm just wondering if the Iron Age was like a born out of necessity because um, kind of the things, I think something I've heard about, iron ore is more plentiful, but um, you have to get higher temperatures or something to change the ore Smelt. into, yeah, to to smelt it down. I'm just wondering if that period of a, a dark age kind of forced people to, um, well, we can't get copper or we can't get tin anymore. Yeah, so just work with what you've got. Inter- yeah. International trade's broken down. We can't get mm. tin from Cornwall or Wales anymore. Yeah. Or, or lapis from Afghanistan. So I'm just wondering, yeah, exactly, <laughs> lapis stone. So I'm just wondering if, uh, when it, does it kind of... Um, that technology kind of appeared, you know, in kind of ancient Greece um, for sort of smelting iron ore and iron becoming sort of like the um, the go-to metal. Do you know that? Um, yeah. So from my understanding, I mean, it's it's very hard to just give a straight DM, demarcation yeah. point for something to occur. But um, obviously it would have been, it's around the time of um, the collapse taking place. A, a lot of, I think, regions start seeing an, a massive influx of iron around 11... 1100, 1000 BC. Um, and it appears to come from the north um, down through, uh, I guess, southern parts of Europe. And it's obviously it's a technology that has been developed and then transmitted that's then filtered its way into other um, civilizations and, and areas. Mm. But it seems to happen, have happened very quickly as well. Yeah. And it, didn't it, I, I'm pretty sure the Chinese had, had iron. Uh, long, long before we had it in Europe as well. I'm not sure if I'm talking smack, but that seems to be in the back of my head. Somewhere. You usually did do. Did they develop the, <laughs> the technology and the the methods independently of each other? Then, because I can't imagine. Oh, this is a big argument from China. All yeah, the way so. Oh, this, this is the transfusion argument with culture. It's, it's, yeah. Have, I, have I stepped into a <laughs> no, it's, no, it's a rabbit just, hole. It's, it's hugely interesting. Can cultures? you know, within, what, 50 years, developed the same technology at the same, you know, roughly the same time. It seems, you know, I'm more of the sort of uh, dispersional theory that things get dispersed and passed along through mm-hmm. person, culture <clears throat> and trade and whatnot, rather than them, them sort of spontaneously developing in different yeah. parts of the world. It's not, yeah, you, you see know, that. who knows. And you see the same argument with even with the Bronze Age developing, um, there's the arguments about you know did did this become a shared technology or did people start coming about it in um in their own context as well but i mean there's evidence of even in the bronze age before we even uh, give the dates of the bronze age we can see like 2000 years earlier where there's examples of items being made of bronze but they're not considered to be in the bronze age because it's not the main metal that uh, is is around yeah Thing, things get, and you can make the same argument for things like agriculture and language, development of language, development of writing. You know, are these these things to me? It seems more makes more sense that they're sort of transmitted, and when they become, or, you know, they, they sort of become popular because they're useful, and then they're transmitted to the local cultures, and it, and it spreads in that way. Does that only make sense though? Because we're in such a connected society now that within it, no it way then. we could ever. It was in 1177 BC. Even they're all marrying China each other's and nieces. In Europe. <laughs> globally. Well, uh, well, it, as, as far as they can, was concerned, it was the globe. It was the the world where that 
revolved around the Mediterranean, you know, from from Egypt to the UK and mm-hmm. Afghanistan, That's mad, Afghanistan in the northeast and uh, Spain. I'm guessing Spain would have been mm-hmm. in and, yeah. and, and, and yeah. North Africa, yeah. Sorry, this is what they've been showing recently as well. Is just how um, uh, I guess in the past people have thought that cultures were quite um, individual and separate from each other, but I think lately they've been showing how connected the world really was, even this far back. I mean, they, they even look at shipwrecks, and you just um, uh, there's a famous one, the Ulu Baran wreck, where you've got um, items that have originated from many different corners of the you know the Mediterranean training world all on one ship and it just is like a bit of a microcosm of of what was taking place and how connected these civilizations actually were with each other I think once we get into seafaring then it, it, the world must have become a, a much smaller place than well than previously I just finished yeah. um, 1421 by Gavin Menzies and it, I know it's like a 20 year old book but he talks about the the Spanish um, Spanish <laughs> the Chinese uh, treasure fleets circumnavigating the globe in in the fourteen early fourteen twenties, and uh, he he was um, a former Royal Navy submarine commander, so he has all this this knowledge about seafaring and how the ocean works and the currents and the Gulf streams and everything and and the way he spells it out is that. It, you know, back in those days, as long as your ship was seaworthy, it had the right kind of sails and you had enough supplies, the currents and the winds and everything else would do all the heavy lifting for you. Yeah, and, and he, he plots, you know, through different forms of evidence, cultural, uh, genomic evidence, all sorts of uh, uh, archaeological evidence. Some in Australia as well, actually, shipwrecks off the coast of various places in Australia. And yeah. he, he charts the way that they've they've, they've gone basically and circumnavigated the circumnavigated navigated the globe from Antarctica to the North Pole, both coasts of North and South America, Cape uh, the Strait of Magellan, hundred years before the Strait before Magellan got there. You know, <laughs> you know, it's it's like, and you think, well, if all they needed was was the ship and the supplies, what's to rule out someone doing that a thousand years earlier? Yeah, yeah, and I think. There's even talk of, like in Herodotus, he talks about, so the Phoenicians, they were a civilization on in the Levant, or a sort of a loosely connected civilization, and they, they were, they're famous for their seafaring. And they were um, basically, Herodotus gives a story where he talks about how they were the first to circumnavigate Africa. And he talks about how this was a story he disbelieved just because of it, it sounded so impossible to do. But um, just in the details, he talks about when they... Um, they crossed down the southern tip and where the sun was rising. He said he gave this as evidence of why um, it couldn't have happened. But then once you cross the southern hemisphere, that's um, exactly what would have taken place. Because yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was just their, their lack of understanding of the world. No one had been, you know, south of, um, of the equator. So mm-hmm. No, they didn't, they didn't understand long. Well, I say they didn't, like we're told that they, they had a poor understanding of longitude and they couldn't work these things well, out. Well, you can kind of, if you're thinking about sort of like the Mediterranean basin, you could imagine, you know, just following the coastline round and then you could, you know, foreseeably or, you know, reasonably see them going up across the north of Africa and then, well, should we just go down and left? Follow the coastline down, <laughs> and then you know you could you you could couldn't you? You could imagine that happening. Now, whether someone would survive, or you know you 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 would assume that every so often you would go off 
onto shore, wouldn't you, and get supplies and whatnot? Oh. Yeah, if you can land and close, a, you, you're always yeah. going to end up... That's what I mean, you. Yeah. ...where you were. And that's a big um, factor, even later on, um, when you look at the, the Greeks and, and whatever else when they're sailing, they don't. They pretty much keep land in sight. They're never out in the deep waters of the ocean where they can't ever see land. They normally sail out, and then as it gets dark, they come in and beach the ships and camp. Right. Um, so it was kind of you're basically land hopping all the all the way around. That's how I imagine that this would have taken place. They could have circumnavigated Africa, but they would have been travelling in and out of the coastline all the way down. Yeah. And I guess it's it's, it's part of, of living in that in that region. Does the the geography? It's full of tiny islands, big islands, small mm. islands. That you know you're going to ad- adapt to the circumstances that your civilization is born in, mm-hmm. and uh, that's going to push you towards seafaring. And also mm. the the Greek expansion, which I guess a lot of people probably aren't aware of before Roman times, so the way the Greeks went to explore places like Santorini tip of Italy. <laughs> Sicily and Italy and all the rest of it. Tell us about the Greek expansion era and when that was and what they were doing. Yeah, so that was taking place, I guess, around the archaic period that we're talking about where, um, or I guess, in t- from the Dark Age sort of change over to the archaic period. As so this, when you this see, is uh, when they stop being Mycenae and they come back as... Yeah, so we basically lose who the Mycenaeans were. Their cultural identity seems to disappear with the collapse and then we start to see what we would now recognise as ancient Greeks and um, coming out of this this whole collapse period and develop. And what we see is they have a, a migration or a, they send out colonies basically. So, And the, the motivation to doing this was a lot of the cities or I guess settlements at this stage were starting to grow more populous. Um, Greece is not the best for growing large crops uh, the soil's quite poor, so um, food would have become an issue in a lot of these centres. And I think you have uh, off the off the coast of Attica, uh, so places like um, Athens and Sparta that we see as the big powerhouses, they weren't the first to recover and become more prosperous. There's a little isle, a strip next to Attica. It was quite a large island. It's called Euboea, and this is one of the places where we start to see. Um, them looking at sending out colonies um, and, a, and a big motivation was because they were trying to uh, reduce the population stress, start a new colony where they could tap into new trading markets and also um, keep everything at home under control as well. And um, yes, Italy, Sicily would be some of the first places that they would look at um, setting up some of these colonies as well. Um, now they wouldn't have been, like a brand new land, you know, arriving there for the first time, they would have had probably trade connections with them in the past and obviously known that this was a good place to try and settle and um, continue or tap into those markets even more. Um, But, yeah, you start to see the Greeks really expand all through the Mediterranean, head up into the Black Sea, uh, the coast of Turkey, so Anatolia. uh, That comes dotted with a a lot of um, Greek settlements very early on as well. Um, uh, Iberia, southern coast of France, uh, North Africa. So, yeah, you, you start to see the Greeks really starting to spread out through the Mediterranean, set up these uh, colonies. And it becomes known as, the, I guess, the, the wider Greek world where you see Greek these uh, identities that are still Greek spread out because they would still keep connections with their mother cities as well. So I'm just wondering, you know, you, you said it was kind of, it would become a struggle to, to feed the population. What were the 
eating, do you know? What was it sort of like grains they were kind of looking to grow on these uh, when they were sort of like expanding and stuff or import? What was it like the main diet like? Uh, yeah, so you see a lot of, a lot more evidence, especially later on um, of, especially through Athens, because that's where a lot of our main sources are, where they're trying to tap into um, grain markets, especially from the uh, Black Sea region. And that becomes like a major staple in their diet. Um, and over in Sicily, these lands become much more, uh, they're much more fertile for that type of growing as well. So this appears uh, wheat and yeah, barley and that type of thing would form a major staple of the diet. Yeah, Sicily was like the breadbasket of, well, of Rome, but it was what the Elegant. Italians and the Carthaginians fought over. Right. Because okay. the, the land was so great there. <laughs> is it because of is it have volcanoes or something on Sicily? Maybe. Yeah, Mount Etna. Mount Etna is on uh, Sicily. So, yeah, I've always imagined Sicily to be a dry island, but maybe not. Yeah, there's different um, parts because, I mean, I've just looked at Sicily in my Greek (laughs) periphery episodes, and, um, yeah, you see these waves of uh, Greek colonies that occurred. You had, um, they recognised three different indigenous cultures on Sicily when they first arrived. Um, but then you also had the Phoenicians that had settled on the West Coast as well. So you had sort of three entities all mixing in. The Greeks would come to establish a lot of the um, East Coast, and that was seen as the more fertile regions, right. um, which was more suitable to growing crops. Um, the local Italian sort of sickles became the more dominant sort of um, uh, Sicilian culture. They were reduced to sort of living in the, the central parts of the island, and while the Phoenicians, who then... Uh, became under a Carthaginian alliance, they occupied a lot of the West Coast. It's just so and, un- so yeah. unique, isn't it, that this one culture or country has managed to dot settlements all around Europe, all around the edge of the Mediterranean, basically, North Africa, Spain, southern France, Italy. There's, there's yeah, nothing else like it in our history, is there? And it's so, form- it's so not formulaic, it's the wrong word. So a form, formative, formative. I don't know what you're trying our to history. say. Well, our entire Western culture oh, is right, basically okay. based. Yeah. Oh, right, yeah. You could argue it's based on Judeo Christianity. Then before that, Rome. Before the, it, the yeah. Romans were based on the Greeks. You yeah. know, if these guys hadn't got in their little boats and decided to dot little yeah. little settlements all over the Mediterranean, our world would be unrecognizable. Yeah, imagine if Xerxes won. Yeah, Um, what's your kind of favorite uh, time period then? Do you like uh, researching the most, or it kind of gives you the most surprises? Or Um, I've always been very partial to the uh, Greco-Persian Wars. I've just found it a very interesting period to to read about, and I think a lot of it is very. Uh, it's very different too because often with the Greeks, it's a lot of Greek on Greek warfare. That was the main. That's probably and that's probably something that a lot of people don't realise is most of the wars that took place were Greeks against other Greek cities, mm. um, and the the Greco Persian Wars is one of the first times where we see um, Greek trying to unite in to some degree to take on an outside invader as well, and who was quite differently set up for warfare than what the Greeks were. Mm. Yeah, I mean that because that kind of um, mentioned before the sort of like the idea of the the different city states. Um, yep. So how tricky was it then to sort of get Athens talking to Sparta and to Corinth 
Thank you for mentioning three Thebes. 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 There we go. Thebes. Yeah. Um, um, who did that? How did that kind of come about? Um, so yeah, very very difficult. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so you had um, this. I guess they call it the, the Hellenic League would be formed, and that would be before um, Xerxes' invasion, where these Greek city states would come together to defend under uh, one idea, supposedly. Um, but before that, you even had 10 years earlier, you had the invasion, uh, the first Persian invasion, which resulted in the Battle of Marathon. Oh. And this is one this is one where Athens, pretty much by itself, with a little bit of help from Plataea, um, fought the, the Persians and, and had sought help from Sparta, who arrived the next day or so. Too, um, too busy supposedly. grooming themselves <laughs> and doing, doing squats. <laughs> Supposedly they were celebrating a religious festival, Carnea. Um, <laughs> but um, a lot of these things become connected or uh, certain ideas can come about, especially once you really read through the entire Greek and Persian wars and start to see little trends develop. But yeah, it wouldn't be until Xerxes' invasion, a couple of years before Xerxes' invasion, where this Hellenic League would be formed. And again, I mean, we're talking, you know, you're talking over a thousand Greek city-states mm. and we had 31 come together. So it's, um, so, I mean, I, I would assume a lot of them would have just stayed on the sidelines, seeing them not being involved too much in, you know, seeing themselves in the path of the invasion. Um, a lot did um, come to arrangements and side with Xerxes, like right. Thebes. Um, what happened to them afterwards then that's, that sided with Xerxes? So, well, so all the, after the wars, all the uh, men who were, um, responsible for seeing uh, Thebes go down that path were taken and executed by the Spartans. Right. Um, but there is also, because uh, we hear at Thermopylae um, of 400 Thebans fighting um, on the side of the Greeks. Mm-hmm. And so in Herodotus, they're basically they're told as being hostages held there. But oh, right. um, I think there's probably... Uh, a, a good theory that suggests that these guys were not held there on against their will, but they were perhaps part of the opposite, the opposition political power in Thebes who were um, looking to, to defend Greece. Um, and so they were from a different faction that would have been opposed to the, the policy that was back in Thebes. I mean, you have this, and, um, sorry. Thank you. I was, was, was going to say, you have these um, Greek outposts in Anatolia as well, like the Lydians and whatnot. So these yeah. are who the, the Persians came across first. They weren't on like the Greek, what we think of mm-hmm. what is Greece now. They're actually mm-hmm. in what's modern-day Turkey. Mm-hmm. And didn't they send word first back to Athens and Sparta for help? Is that not what yeah, sparked so, most of it off? Yeah, so it's it's what's called the um, Ionian Revolt. Is what's Ionian, supposedly... Ionian, yeah. So it's what's considered to have sparked the whole Greek and Persian wars. Um, again, these 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 settlements were born out of the uh, Greek uh, migrations that took place that, that came out and formed colonies along the coastline. Uh, and a lot of these settlements are where they recognise a lot of developments really taking place before they then were transferred back into mainland Greece. But um, they would become under they would come under control of uh, the Lydian Empire first. So that was uh, under. King Croesus, richest who would, uh, yep, and I, it's a saying they always hear that apparently it's a, a well-known saying, but I don't think anyone under um, thirty or thirty-five has ever heard of it before. <laughs> but, um, 
close. I thought you were going to say under 50 or something. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, I was just trying to be nice. but um, well, he's, but he's, he's, he's famous anyway. for inventing coinage, isn't he, Creases? Yeah, so he's supposedly um, he's famous for inventing the, the gold coin, yeah. um, minting the gold coin. Um, it's thought perhaps maybe his um, his predecessor may have done it, but um, uh, he's, obviously he's going to take credit for it. Um, <laughs> and that's who we have the most uh, information on anyway. When they when uh, Herodotus, Herodotus is our main source on, on this sort of period, and that's who we get the bigger picture from. But um, yeah, you would have the Lydians who ended up incorporating a lot of the um, Ionian cities into their their empire. Um, but then about 50 years um, or less after that, that's when Persia was really uh, steamrolling across um, the Near East and started coming westwards where they would eventually come up against the uh, the Lydian Empire. And um, we get our famous, uh, you probably heard of the uh, Oracle of Delphi that Croesus sent off for, asking if he should attack the uh, Persians and um, got the response that if he attacked, uh, a mighty empire would fall. Uh, little did you know that was his. Yours, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, so then the Persians basically incorporated all of Ionia, um, and the Ionian Greeks traded one one master for another. And uh, from what we can understand, it's, it, it appears that um, it was probably down to money. Like uh, I think they were being taxed a much higher rate than what they were used to, and this is what. Um, uh, sparked them to seek help from the main from mainland Greece to um, uh, help in a, in a revolt that was going to break out. Um, it appears that the revolt was going to happen anyway. Uh, just there seems to be a bit of a momentum there. Um, then they they sought aid from from the Greeks, who um, realistically only a very small amount of help came from from Greece, which was in the form of Athens and Eritrea. And um, I think they sent something like 20, 25 ships that went over to, to take part in the Ionian Revolt, which was very short-lived. Um, they got as far as Sardis, which is, I guess, the main uh, governing city for the, the western part of the empire. Um, they couldn't take the Acropolis there and retreated back, and they were defeated in a battle outside of Ephesus. And uh, that was basically, once they were routed and got back to their ships. That was the last that uh, mainland Greece uh, had involved in, in the Ionian revolt. Yeah, because you've got to bear in mind, it's it's a bit of like a David and Goliath match here. Like, the Persian Empire is ginormous. <laughs> this is like Berser- Berserxes, as I like to call him. <laughs> you know, the, the other guy, Cyrus and Darius, they've already put the hard yards in as far as conquesting and then organising with the satrapies and all the rest of it. They have a really well-oiled, well-organised, ginormous empire. And they're coming up against these little city-states that are busy warring between themselves and, and whatnot. It's, it really is. It's one of those turning points in history where you think, what if... Mm. What if it went the yeah. other way? That's what fascinates me. Yeah, and it's understanding the motivations too, especially through those Greek and Persian wars. It appears that um, the first invasion doesn't even seem like they were trying to conquer Greece. Just the, the size oh. of the force that was sent was quite small. Um, you couldn't imagine it trying to sweep through to take everything over. But um, in 10 years later, was this planned for or is this in response to their defeat? It's... And it becomes difficult to tell. Um, but Persia has always had a, 
uh, policy of expansionism through all of their kings. So um, there's evidence where they do have limited, um, say, probes into new territories where they'll take key points and then there'll be like a massive influx of troops or a larger invasion to try and um, uh, conquer it further. So that's another theory that could have been taking place as well. I mean, what would have happened? What 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 would happen, Mark? If if uh, <laughs> let, what, let's say let's say um, Thermopylae doesn't happen and and the Persians steamroll through Greece. Um, good question. <laughs> and um, I think what history would be quite different. I mean, just a I bit. Guess one, just a bit. <laughs> There's a Netflix one, one, series in there somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> that's, and that's, I, I think it's it perhaps maybe um, they may have come that far. Who knows if they would have gone on to um, incorporate Rome, whether that would have been uh, if Rome had time to develop to be able to uh, to oppose them as well. But even if that had taken place, a lot of the Greek culture would be missing that was incorporated into Roman uh, culture as well. So, uh, yeah, yeah, I guess, I I guess if, the question is where would the Persians have stopped, isn't it? You know, if, if it, yeah. the, the Greece, Greece uh, they took Anatolia and then Greece was the next step as far as coming into Europe. And if they roll yeah, over so, the Greeks, then the next step is Italian Peninsula. Italy, it? yeah. And North yeah. Africa, Carthage. Yep. Um, um, you might have had some sort of alliance between the Romans and the Carthaginians to fight against the Persian... Uh... Oh, you love that. You oh, love I that. would love that, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> um, and even, even there's suggestions that... Um, so at that stage, Rome was quite small. Like it was, it was its own um, city at that stage. It would hadn't it, would expanded it, through. Would it have had the control of the peninsula by then, Rome? What we're talking for, for Xerxes no. about three, four, four thirty. Four, four. So four uh, so eighty was his invasion of Greece. And right. um, from my understanding, Rome was still quite small at that stage. It hadn't gone through its um, Samnite wars and all that sort of thing as well. True, but yeah. there is talk. There's talk of um, on so on Sicily. You had Galon, who was the most powerful tyrant at that stage, who is, um, by that stage, a lot of the cities on, on Sicily had come under his control, and he's meant to have um, controlled a very large navy and, and uh, army as well. And before Xerxes' invasion, the Greeks had actually visited um, visited him to see if they could get aid, who he was going to give them, I think, 200 ships and 20,000 men to, to help fight in the war. But he uh, his stipulation was he was he had to be the commander, and um, <laughs> and the Greeks were not prepared to have a tyrant lead a um, united Greek force over in Greek lands. And but again, this is how accurate this is. We don't really know. I mean, it could have been, and Galen may have well known that they weren't going to accept his terms. So, but it was seen as oh look, I'm this powerful. I'm offering all this help, but they're not going to take it. But um. And this leads into another question is because at the same time, um, the Carthaginians invaded Sicily on the, in the same year. And it's questions has been proposed has was um, Xerxes and um, Hamilcar in Carthage. Were they in back, talks trying back, to coordinate invasions? Yeah. Oh, were they no trying, way. Were they trying to um, prevent them from uniting to be able to, um, for, for uh, Sicily to come and fight? So, um <laughs> It's yeah, we don't know for sure, but like, it is. It's it, like the oldest conspiracy theory. <laughs> <laughs> it's 
Xerxes and Hamilcar and the old bat channels, a bit of diplomatic few letters here and there. Yeah. Now we're we're planning to uh, we're going to take on the Greeks. Maybe we can have a bit of a pincer movement there. Cut off the grain supplies from Sicily. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Because mm-hmm. these Romans are getting a bit, you know, What's it, sort of uh, the coalescing now. Mm. This is the old divide and conquer. It's like what the Mongols used to do. Oh, sorry, what the Chinese used to do against the, the, the Mongols. Keep them divided and fighting between themselves. It's when these sort of states coalesce, and that's what we had with Greece in the end of the day. These states sort of, mm. well, they didn't coalesce. Alexander the Great came <coughs> and, and kicked the butts and took over, but, you know. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I really, but, uh, yeah. we're knocking up to an hour already, and I wanted to talk to you about the blooming uh, mystery schools. <laughs> that was my main thing I wanted to talk to you why, about. Why, was... why don't you just have like 10 minutes on it now then? Come on. What's going on, Mark, with the, the ancient mysteries? What's your take on what's going on so, with the, the Oracle of Delphi and all the rest of it? Um, so I, I guess Delphi, yeah, that's the one place we have a lot more information. But um, all the mysteries that take place, I guess they're called mysteries for a reason. We don't really know what was happening within them. But um, um, Eleusis was one place down near um, in near Attica where we get a lot of, uh, I guess it's probably one of the most famous sort of mysteries that took place. Um, I remember reading something gone. So that, a lot of these were around religious type activities, but we don't know what, what was taking place in them. Though it does appear... Um, I guess what like mushrooms were involved to some degree, different hallucinogens. Um, there was a, I'm trying to remember his name now, but I, it's, it's the, escaped my this head. This is the Immortality Key by Brian Murescu, is it not? I think so, yeah. And yeah, he talks about, and you can see in a lot of, a lot of pottery, you can see um, like mushrooms um, being held by people and, and that type of thing that are associated with these mysteries. But, um, and when you do hear them uh, written about, there's no details of what was taking place within them. So it's, again, it is, it is a mystery. Um, Delphi, I think it was, it was different. It was like an Oracle and it was meant to be a place not controlled by any one city. And um, obviously a lot of, it became quite wealthy too, because a lot of people would go there to get um, prophecies and oracles. It wasn't just, you know, Sparta or Athens would go there to, to get some um, oracle, but everyday people could line up to go in to ask questions and and whatever else. And it would only happen uh, once a month that the um, Pythia would would um, would meet. So people would uh, travel and wait in line a long time to be able to get the opportunity to ask their questions. And it seems like that the Delphi Oracle that's linked to Apollo, and it's linked to the sort of, for want of a better word, the mainstream religion in ancient Greece. The 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 common pantheon of gods and Apollo at the, up at the top, whereas yeah. the mysteries, that seems something different. That's something more subversive and maybe doesn't have that sort of religion, the underpin, underpinning of religion underneath it. There's something different going on there with the mystery skills. It's more. It seems more to me like this initiation for a start. Yeah. You, yeah. you know, we can't just walk up and be enrolled in the, into the mysteries. There's an initiation, you have to be prove yourself to be worthy and then you're handed some sort of knowledge and then you come back and you come back. Hadrian was a big fan of it, the Greekling, Roman emperor. Yep. He was an, an, an initiate as well as a lot of the famous Roman writers and historians. So it did actually carry mm-hmm. on beyond ancient Greece after it had been sucked yeah. up, didn't it, by the Roman Empire? 
Yeah, and a lot of these institutions did, but sometimes I think they were more in in name, and because of the they had already become quite a famous uh, institution where people wanted to sort of continue along with it as well. Um, but in Greece, you find the same thing. A lot of aristocrats um, were involved in these mysteries to some degree as well. And yeah, there seems to be initiations, um, but no one really talks about what they were or what was done within them. Uh, some were uh, devoted to, to different deities as well. Like Dionysus is a famous one as well that becomes involved in, in a number of them. But um, yeah, again, it's, yeah, they're called a mystery for a reason. And Eleusis would have been Bacchus, I think, would it not? Bacchus, got um, Possibly. Don't quote me. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I'm not 100% on that. Yeah, there's something about Eleusis. I'm just thinking back to that Brian Marescu book about wine and dancing and partying. And uh, he well, trained. Um, sorry, Dionysus is associated with uh, the god of wine and, and whatever else. So. Yeah possibly maybe Bacchus is a Roman god and I'm getting mixed up there's that many it's yeah. so strange isn't it we've gone from this sort of pantheistic mm. uh, world, uh, world view or religious world view a couple of thousand years ago it's just it's so seminal isn't it that we've gone to this Judeo-Christian one god what's one the party word? system <laughs> Mono, monotheistic. monotheistic system. <laughs> it's such a massive, massive sea change, and it, it requires massive centralization of power via the Roman Empire to make that happen and to change all the feast days and whatnot. So yeah. we're not we're celebrating All Saints Day, or All, all, all Hallows oh, Eve, yeah, all, yeah. all Hallows Eve tomorrow, All Saints Day. The Romans move that because it was convenient because there was a pagan holiday there you mm. know and all this lot it'd be really interesting yeah. to see what modern life would be like under like you know 300 gods and god <laughs> the god of broadband that you you've got a little shrine to when your connection goes down and <laughs> do you not have that no obviously not <laughs> but i mean they had gods for everything like every every day seemingly everyday things didn't yeah. they yeah, I think, and the thing, the big thing with the multi um, polytheism, polytheism is the fact that they were born out of not so much. I guess today we look at the gods and we see them as as like human identities that are associated with something. Where you know Zeus is this big guy holding thunderbolts and whatever else, or you know Poseidon sitting in the sea with his trident. But in their earlier um, days, they were seen as the personification of things. So it was more like. Poseidon was the earthquake that was taking place. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, Zeus was the storm that was occurring. Um, Aphrodite, she was, you know, she was the lust that someone was feeling for someone. It was thing. It was more personification rather than a um, associating a, a sort of figure with the god. Yeah, it was based in nature. Mm. They, mm. they looked at the world around them and tried to explain the things that they saw. And then it was later on that things sort of got anthropomorphized. I don't anthropomorphized, know I was going to say that. <laughs> the word, yeah. Decided against it. And we end up looking at like a big guy in the sky on sitting on a cloud playing a harp with a beard. It's, uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, early on it would have. And this is the same for all cultures that had uh, multiple gods. It was, they were born out of the natural world. It was looking at something controlled something. And um, without science, they couldn't, you know, you couldn't explain certain things, so it, it became um, deified and 
then there were other reasons to try and explain why things were not going right or why they were going wrong. Well, it's just people trying to make sense of the world around them, isn't it? Yeah. It's what we always try and do. and It's what we do on the Amish Inquisition podcast. <laughs> Every <isn't> week. It's <laughs> <laughs> trying to make sense of stuff, man. Yeah, man. It's so hard. <sighs> especially so, for us. <laughs> yeah, especially when you've only got like a 40-watt light bulb up here. You're trying to do all the work. Yeah. I wish I had a superpower brain sometimes. Mm. It'd be great being a genius. I'll let you know. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Mark, we've we've gone past an hour. We're going to have to let you go and get on with your day. Mm. Uh, cheers, Mark. That's been great. Enjoy no Halloween. Absolutely. Yes, yeah. Sam. Yeah. Sam, Sam Wayne. Sam Wayne. Who? Sam, <laughs> Sam Wayne. That's the old uh, Celtic. Sam, yeah. Oh, Sam right, okay. Well, it, it's spelt Sam Wayne, but it's pronounced Sam Wayne. Sam Wayne. Yeah, flip that m upside down. Sam, Sam Wayne. Wayne. Turn that frown. Turn that Into pen. a Wayne. Yeah. yeah exactly. <laughs> Well, it's been great. It's been a pleasure to meet you, Mark, and yeah. uh, enjoyed talking to you and learning bits about ancient Greece. We love it. Yeah, mm-hmm. and yeah, it's really good. To you guys Thank too. You very much. Mm. Yeah, and thanks for having me on. Stay on the line we, while we play ourselves out, and yeah. uh, we'll catch you on the flip side. Don't touch that dial. Mm-hmm. Stay tuned for part two. Right, then we're back. The dwarf, the cripple, and the mother of madness. Hopefully you just heard our chat with Mark Selleck. Yeah. yeah. I'm casting through ancient Greece. Mm. But we don't know because we're doing that. We're ass backwards again. Yeah. Uh, ain't it because, always the way? Know, from the other side of the world. Again. Yeah, time zones are uh, mm. a thorn in my side. <clears throat> I'm a boy with a thorn in his side, and that thorn is time zones. Uh, all right. Well, um, there's a lot of them. Too many, would you say? Are you for a universal time across the board? Considering the Earth is flat, I don't see the need for them. <laughs> yeah, that is true, isn't it? Uh, it always makes me a bit discombobulated when we when we do things backwards. Yeah, but you know, we'll be back to normal soon. Yeah, it'll be fine. Yeah. If something amazing happened, it's not happened yet in the, in our chat with uh, with Mark. I'm sure it was great. I'm sure it was like the best. Right, should we move on? Yeah, moving on. Housekeeping. Housekeeping. This is a value for value podcast. If you find this podcast valuable, please consider returning some value. Mm. There's tons of ways of doing this. My favourite is uh, word of mouth. <laughs> Word of mouth. Uh, it would be advertising. Yeah, if you know someone yeah. who likes podcasts, say, "Oi, oi, fucker! Listen to this one. Yeah. You might learn something about ancient Greece. You might. Yeah, <clears throat> you might do if you if that floats your boat. Yeah, yeah, or whatever. You know. Mm. Yeah, I think that's that's probably a really good way of spreading the message. I think it is. Word of mouth definitely works. I think that's where most of our listeners come from, is through word of mouth. Through I would say so. Not necessarily physical, my words going into your mouth, <laughs> via your ears. But through, you know, either Discord or social media or yeah. stuff like that. Mm. It's the same principle, isn't it? It's just like you using... Yeah, just banging on about it. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. so uh, word of mouth, share links with people on social media. Uh, YouTube and Odyssey can subscribe on there. Yeah. Yep. Very important. Uh, YouTube, we're on, I think, 293, I think, subs now. Yeah. 
So wow. please get us up to 300, because when we hit the 300 milestone, yeah, I believe that Odyssey will um, automate our uploads. Oh, well, that's okay. nice. So when we upload a video to YouTube and then immediately delete it, <laughs> make it private, this uh, this part anyway, mm. um, Odyssey do, does that for you if you have a certain number of subscribers. So it saves me mm. a job every week. Oh, that's yeah. good. So good seven know. more of you fuckers. Yeah. Get on the, uh, you find us on YouTube. I don't care, you don't even have to watch it. Just subscribe and forget <laughs> about it. Yeah. Even make a dummy account. Yeah, you could do that, yeah. In fact, we could do that. Yeah. We could make seven dummy accounts and subscribe to ourselves. Uh, yeah. <laughs> we, 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 we do enough. You have to do it. You have to do yeah, it. Yeah, listening. yeah, yeah. Uh, Odyssey, you can earn some crypto and you can see how the sausage is made and it's full length, full girth. <laughs> part one, part two. <laughs> What's up with you? Are you excited? <laughs> Turgid. Just, I don't know. It's just like five minutes in and talking about <laughs> fat sausages. In. We're like an hour and 15 in. Yeah. Yeah. Well, <laughs> been here all night. Yeah. Maybe yeah. you two have. It feels like I've been here all night. <laughs> Leave us a review on iTunes and uh, we will gladly read them out. Yeah. Or if you leave, leave a review on another podcasting app like Podcast Addict, forward it to <clears> us and we'll read it out. Yeah, yeah, I like I like reading podcast reviews. It's good yeah. comments on YouTube as well, and I think Odyssey as well, right? So. Well, it's just engagement in general yeah. helps, doesn't it? Yeah. Engage helps, helps with the uh, um, algos. Uh, merch go yeah. to the Amish loot chest. Yeah. Buy an Amish Inquisition, uh, literally a communist hoodie. What is modelling there? Yeah, see what is modelling? It's right there. Are you going to zoom in? No, not <laughs> zooming in. I'm, I'm going to end this and see you. Uh, it should still work. Oh. Um, new merch at the loot chest. Yeah. Three indeed. weeks to flatten the earth t-shirts. Yeah, I enjoyed Snappy it. Snappy slogan. I like it. That it's there. It's landed. Look fresh on a mug, that. Yeah, it would. Or a, a, a fridge magnet. Yeah. You're in luck, you're not. <laughs> you, can, uh, you can have, mag- you can have uh, mug. I've done a mug. I've done t-shirts. Yeah. Men, women. <clears throat> Men, women. <laughs> and stickers. You can have a stick in a sticker form. Yeah. Uh, if there is un- overwhelming public demand for a hoodie, yeah, I will. You know. Well, I think I'd. I that. think I'd. Uh, I'd have a hoodie. I'd buy that. I'd make that my second Amish Inquisition hoodie. Oh. Number two. Okay, give me five working days, <laughs> and I will put a hoodie on the loot chest. Okay. If you don't buy it, I'll, I'll we'll disown you. What's no, yeah. <laughs> What's the quality of that hoodie, man? I mean, I, I probably if I had to sum it up in one word, I'd probably say superior. Nice, that's that's a good word. To not wearing a hoodie, <laughs> yeah. To, <laughs> to being naked, it feels all right. It's yeah. thick as well. You're nipping my bingo wings. <laughs> <laughs> is that a, is that a yeah. euphemism? <laughs> I wish it was. I don't know. <laughs> um, it's uh, no, I, I I wear it quite often. Yeah. Um, it's it's very comfortable. I like how the hood sits. It has now been washed twice. What's the bubble situation? And a minimal bobblage. Oh, but that's... obviously, because it has a transfer... There's nothing natural in it. <laughs> it won't get any bubbles. <laughs> because it has a transfer, you have, you, obviously you wash it inside out, don't yes. you? Oh, yes. Like, you know, basic... Basic, like condoms. Yeah, basic <laughs> kind of condom maintenance. There's no crackage on the uh, image, is there? 
no, not that's not supposed to be there. It's in Lenin's forehead. Yeah. <laughs> that's probably supposed to be there. Yeah. Good. You're literally a communist. It warms the cockles of my heart. Mm. It's uh, nice. Um, join the Discord server. Yeah, join Discord and talk to us. We, I quite like, this is becoming fast going up the charts of my favourite way to give back is suggesting people. Guest, yeah. guest suggestions. Yeah, so like someone uh, said some about, get someone on about Vikings who had been to <coughs> South America. So, <coughs> last Phil dies. I, I'd like to say I've started to do that, but I haven't, but I will Yeah, try and find someone. Yeah, join the community on Discord. That's the best place to send us um, show artwork for episodes or merchandise, uh, memes for Instagram. Should say big thanks to Lee from the Big Conspire <coughs> for uh, providing oh, yeah. the artwork. Does he not get a uh, some kind of producer credit? Uh, yeah. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Memes mm-hmm. for Instagram. Uh, you can request a birthday shout out. Focus G requests. Uh, we've got a couple of birthdays actually. Right, hey, Papa Lou. Oh, yeah, big paps. Papa Lou's got a birthday on the 4th of November. Mm. Happy birthday, Hugh Janus. And uh, Amish Dylan is 10 today. <laughs> Happy birthday, Hugh Janus. Hang on a minute. The, we've, we've been talking off air about the, the thresholds to be named an Amish. Uh, okay. Is this like the nepotism and... Uh, Cronyism at its finest, <laughs> even within be, the Amish Inquisition podcast. Do you now have to be the seventh son of a seventh son? <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a capitalist. Nepotism's I'm a part of. I'm a Marxist. <laughs> yeah, it's part that comes with the territory. Okay. Uh, birthday shout-outs, guest suggestions, as you mentioned, jingle requests, corrections, addendums, corrigendums, and just general chat. Just general chat, man. On the Discord. <laughs> Sorry, Moody. Sorry, Moody. <laughs> no. Yeah. Uh, Focus Chi requests. Yeah, Focus Chi. We've got a thread on the Discord for Focus Chi requests. I haven't got any this week. So it's been a couple of weeks. We haven't had any. So everything must be going fine in Plopland. (laughs) (laughs) You don't need any Focus Chi. Yeah. Well, fine. We'll take that as good news. Save it up. Oh, save it up. Focus Chi um, updates. Do you remember we did a Focus Chi um, request for me to do my essay? Do you remember? Oh, that was a while ago, yeah, yeah. I remember that, yeah. Um, I got you, the best you mark did your essay. of my essay so far, with like my, uh, on my course. Oh, did you get a gold star? Uh, no. And a lollipop. <laughs> no. But there you go, it works, another thing that worked. Yeah. Well done. Is there, do, we need to, do we need to release Focus Chi, like, routinely? Is there a blue ball situation if we don't, <laughs> <laughs> if we don't routinely uh, release the Chi? Could be. I don't know. Like we didn't. We need to ask an expert, really. Right, okay, I'll get on it. Yeah, I know a guy. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, just not a transhuman one. <laughs> a Russian one. It's the future. Cyber suits. <laughs> oh, God. Uh, what's the best way to become a producer? Oh, it's uh, money. <laughs> Toss a coin to your Absolutely. Do it for the lads. 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 Because we're northern. Oh, we're northern and we're bloody miserable and the weather's fucking shit. Yes, go to the armishinquisition.com, find the PayPal donate button there, and uh, that's the way you can either give us a, a one-off donation, sign up for a monthly... 
Fifty pound donations and over grant you executive producer status, and that is the way that you can save Plotland and keep the lights on, keep us running. Right. We might not actually need any lights uh, in the next twelve hours if this uh, when the CME hits. Oh yeah, when is it due? Because I was in the, the next the twelve sky hours. Is clear at the moment, so apparently you can you can see uh, aurora as far south as here and and below oh. a cme coronal mass ejection oh it's on its way it's oh, what man. happens when you don't yeah. focus your chi after <laughs> <laughs> yeah i think it's going to be a level they're saying at least a level three a g3 but it could go up to a g5 what does that mean uh i don't think a g5 would be very good See, it's okay if you just turn everything off, though, isn't it? Make sure the airships have landed. No, no. Just fries everything anyway. Well, I'm not sure. I think the Carrington event was maybe a G8. Right, okay. Uh, we're a bit more dependent on electricity. I know, that's now. the thing, isn't it? Uh, so we'll see. I was I was looking at some messages on the on this uh, Telegram group I'm in, and uh, Charlie Robinson's like, yeehaw, let's fucking get it over with. I'm prepped, I'm ready. <laughs> it's the end of the world, and we know it. <laughs> but it probably won't be. So this could be the last podcast ever recorded. It could be. Yeah. By mankind. Yeah. Imagine. Not, not when to heap the uh, responsibility on you. We should etch a transcript onto stone. <laughs> yeah. For, for the future ones. <laughs> yeah, what was I saying about girth? I do, uh... <laughs> I'm not sure we should etch it. Okay. <laughs> Maybe... That's one a bit more serious to do something. What have you done? I'm just pulling bits of dough out of my the hair on the back of my hands. <laughs> Big baking. <laughs> I made some pizzas, so I've got I've got. I think that was the last ball of dried pizza dough in in, in the hair on my knuckles. It's <laughs> <laughs> like swarfiga or something. It's enough for another pizza, though. Right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is. Pulling it out. Oh, you need to shave your hands <laughs> before yeah. you start. You can tell him, yeah, yeah. It's nice to see you've come in a Halloween costume, eh? You can talk. You can talk. You can talk. Are you like him, Beanie McBean? <laughs> what? <laughs> exactly. I'm trying different hats. You started it, right? Are we going to do the next bit? Are now? you trying to be? Uh, who's the? Is Tim? Who's the guy? The uh, the podcaster Tim. Bernard I don't Lee. know any podcasters. The Tim. The Tim man. The Tim. Yeah, the Tim guy. He's, he's hugely popular in the United States. Tim. It's not Tim Ferris. I forget. Anyway. I'm, I'm, the one, though. <laughs> he sounds hugely successful for a start. I'm sure he is. Yeah. Shame. I've, uh, I'm blanking on his name. Anyway, let's move on. Let's thank the producers for episode 205. I think it's about time, isn't it? It's time to big up the man Dems, yo. Okay, we've got Rona Kesson, Big Spuds, Zachtopia, Helen from Berkshire, Mostly Spooky, Lee from the Bog Conspire, <laughs> oh, yeah. Lee from the Big Conspire, Conspire, <laughs> fucking hell. Slicko and Nomi Nosnodge, thank you. They are, yeah, so amazing in their love. It's a miracle. Literally. The best mate. The dwarf. The carrots. The grape. The homophobe. The winds. The asthma. The corrupt cunt. The number 11. The blind man. The fallen on the horizon. What did you do with 
big jungus. The cripple and the mother of... An old friend is here. From hell. Bring on Delightful! Yeah, thanks for your support for another week. What's up? No, I was just going to say, me and Amish Ben went to go and watch um, June on Tuesday. It was epic, Ben, wasn't it? It was, it was epic, yeah. And who, guess who was in June? Nigel Farage? <laughs> no. No. Tony Blair? No. Oh. Um, I don't even know his name. <laughs> no. Bill Gates? I can't remember what they're called either. Shaxx? What are called? No, it wasn't Shaxx. Was it those, the Drifter? What are no. those balls called on Destiny with eyes? The, um... An old servitor. friend. Servitor. There was a, the servitor was in it, and it was the same voice, and it said, an old friend is here. Get out! In the light, light towards the end of the film, yeah. It's amazing. Oh, yeah. the Destiny nurse was all like you two. Did you juice your pants? Yeah, me and Ben looked at each other like this. <laughs> Epic dub. Yeah. Oh, my word. It was excellent. I'm pretty sure that Ben was asleep for three times. I thought you were asleep. I kept looking at you going, because all of a sudden I just heard this... <laughs> and I'd look and I'd like is his eyes open <laughs> they were I remember all the sandy bits <laughs> how long was it it's two and a half hours yeah, is it it seemed longer than that though I've heard it's slow paced but good um, I thought it was excellent yeah I'd, yeah, I'd watch it again apparently the ending was sort of uh they could have made it better. I mean, it's obvious that it's going into a second film, but from what I've heard, they could have picked a better place to to end it. To uh, I don't know. I, I don't. I'm not familiar with with the book, so after, yeah. I don't know what. Yeah, how you could do it differently. Mm. I thought it was very good. It's a big fat guy in it. Yeah, who's that? The Baron. I can't remember his name. Baron Greenback. Yeah, yeah, basically, he's a Harkonnen. Is, is he a he Harkonnen? Is a Harkonnen. Yeah, he's a Harkonnen called Baron the Baron. The Baron something. Yeah, the Harkonnens are the baddies. Yeah. I've not read it yet, so I'm probably not going to watch it till I've read it, I don't think. I, I hadn't read it for, well, I don't know, since I was a teenager, so I don't know. I remembered bits. <sighs> I've not read it. No. There you go. I'm going it for Christmas, it though. It's four pounds. Four, four pounds? pounds? In the works? On Amazon, yeah. Oh, yeah. I think it's only the first book, though. I think the sixth. First edition? Yeah. The sixth, apparently. It's the sixth? Yeah. Well, there were three. Oh, it's a bit like Hitchhikers, a trilogy of six. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. Right, go on. Right, let's move on. Yeah. Oh. COVID-19 news. People have got to understand vaccination is going to be, in the end, your route to liberty. The magic vaccine. A big fat shot in the ass. From hell. Oh! You know, it's just, you know, super painful. Like a judgment day and terminating mode life. It's not going to allow us to go completely back to normal. Anal swab tests in the same ballpark as seasonal influenza. Because we're getting bored, we want to have fun. But I can't say if you're not wearing a face mask. Read the standing orders. Read them and understand them. The uh, <laughs> the emergency powers in the UK got rolled over for another six months. Did we see that? Yeah. It, it was up this week for the because uh, there's like a six monthly sunset clause on it. <laughs> yeah. Did you see the video of them? Uh, 
uh, voting in Parliament. Didn't bother to watch it. This is democracy in action. The question is, motion number four, as on the order paper, as many as are of that opinion say aye. Aye! Of the contrary, no. again no. I'm afraid I fear the mood of the house is not to have a vote on this I do understand I think the honourable gentleman would have to rustle up a few more people to really get the sense that we required a vote when we do I'm sure they will The eyes have it. The eyes. You really, you really need to watch the video to see how just contemptuous they are of the uh, mm. democratic process of the people. Did you hear who, who was that screaming no in the background? Tony Ben. <laughs> From beyond the grave. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe it was Big Chungus. Oh, right. Oh, I thought you knew. No, it's... What did you do with Big Chungus? I think it was him. Right. Or, is, or maybe it was Desmond Swain. But yeah, you, you need to see the video. I mean, it's just such a fucking chuckle fest. It's uh, it's quite outrageous how I think British politics has been like that since the dawn of time. Yeah, like a boys' club. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. It's a weird place, isn't it? I mean, the thing is, it's usually sort of inconsequential. Like what they do down there, it doesn't bother me. It doesn't affect me. But once they tell you, like, you can't leave your house, then it actually affects me and it gets my back up. Mm. Yeah, no, so, understandably. Uh, you know, I think they could use with a bit of decorum maybe down there. Mm. Well, just not even bothering to have a proper vote on it. That was, you know, they, they're not even having a vote on the motion. I know, didn't even weird, get that far. It? No, because there's no appetite. There's no appetite in the house. I think maybe you need to rustle up a few more, <laughs> a few more voices. Yes, it's just, mm. it was just, it was pathetic to watch. Mm. Really, we're supposed to be the home of democracy. Democracy, <laughs> home of democracy. Yeah, <laughs> that tra- was before. <laughs> it's kind of, it's kind of tragic. See what it's come to. Mm. Anyway, shall we uh, catch up with how things are going with medical apartheid? Oh, do that, do that <laughs> again. What? Well, do I? <laughs> Maybe you cleared your throat. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, throat in my throat. Ooh. Yes, uh, the medical apartheid is ramping up in Austria. Oh, right, man. Got a report from uh, our friends at Deutsche Welle. Oh, yeah. Oh, Lars, the Deutsche Welle. How yeah. long has it been? It's been a long time. Austria is warning people unvaccinated against COVID-19 that they could be put into lockdown if hospital intensive care units come under too much strain. Those who have received their shots or recovered from the virus will be exempt from any new lockdown. The country's chancellor warned of a pandemic of the unprotected as infection numbers in Austria rise. Around 62% of eligible people have been fully vaccinated, but the campaign has stalled. After crisis meeting, Chancellor Alexander Schallenberg said if hopes, he hopes the plan will send a message. Oh. Yeah, there's nothing, nothing more interesting after that. You got the message. So this is looks to be coming out. They've set like a benchmark for ICU numbers. Right. So if the ICU numbers, I think they're currently about 200 people mm. in Austria in ICU. 
I think if he gets to 600, then they're going to lock down people who aren't vaccinated. Or have not recovered from the virus. So it's basically, people who don't have antibodies. People who aren't vaccinated or, or haven't, recovered. haven't recovered. But but the, it says that you can have the virus and transmit the virus if, even if you are vaccinated. Yeah, so it's not about it's not about health, is it? I know. So I yeah. mean, how can they do that? It's about health security. Fuck me. It's about <laughs> coercion, isn't it? It's awful. That. Uh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> let's go to uh, Jacinda. Jacinda Ardern, the wicked witch of New Zealand. Oh God, yeah. That's she right would... next door to Austria. Yeah, yeah. It's, it sounds exactly. Yeah. <laughs> it is right. Okay. Our Antipodean friends in Austria. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> where that their Hitler came from. Aye. Isn't it? Aye, aye. Anyway, yeah. Okay. Yeah. No, no, I thought you were talking about Ralph Harris. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, let's go to Jacinda, because she was questioned about this. Um, on a lo- Along similar lines, treating people differently based on whether they've had the medical treatment or not. Mm. And uh, I think I've got a clip of her. Where have I, where have I put it? Oh. oh, it's here, Jacinda. Jacinda. So you basically see it. this is going to be like, well, it's almost like uh, you probably don't see it like this, the two different classes of people. If you... So basically, you probably don't agree with this, but we're talking about two different classes of people. If you're vaccinated or if you're unvaccinated, you have all these rights. If you are vaccinated... That is what it is. So, yep. Yep. Can you describe as you... <laughs> Did she do a little giggle at the end of it as well? Just smiling and nodding away at it. Yeah, that's what we're doing. We're creating two classes of people. Yeah. There are already many classes of people, though, right? Like people who use four disabled bays in B and Q. Uh oh, without a badge, are <laughs> a, a class of people that I have classed as assholes. Well, this is a binary class, isn't it? It's us versus them. Is what you're saying? No, I mean it's you've been vaccinated or you haven't. How large? I don't know what you're getting at, really. So, <laughs> so people He's who park people who park across four disabled spaces should be locked in their homes. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Forever. Okay. We can all agree. Okay. Yeah, I agree with that. Why not? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I can't, be- I can't believe the stones on her. That she can just admit that. There's going to be two classes of people: one who are vaccinated and can go about their business, and two those who aren't vaccinated can't. Yeah, it must just. Um... <clears throat> what about if they have uh, a medical exemption um, necklace? Well, it depends what the rules will be. Our government's tightened up what the r- rules are going to be on that about medical exemptions, I believe. What's whose watch is it? Your watch that? Don't know. I don't think you should need a fucking medical exemption to go to the cinema or to go to shopping. Then <laughs> in Wales, aren't they? They're extending that, aren't they, to um, the COVID pass to cinemas? Yeah, because it's working so well. Obviously, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Well, I thought we we didn't do it here in in England for probably Steve. the same reason. Isn't me? Yeah, it's your, your tracking device is uh, interfering with the audio. It's my transhumanism showing. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
let's go off to South Australia because uh, one business has taken the sort of opposite direction. You've heard of no jab, no entry. Well, now one Kentown business is going the other way and locking out customers who've been vaccinated. Experts say while it's a controversial move, there's nothing stopping them from discriminating. The business might be called Gigantic Signs, but you'll have to read the fine print before stepping inside. That goes against the grain, doesn't it? I mean, if you've had a COVID vaccine, you should be allowed anywhere, I think. The owner of the King William Street business pinned the sign up last week, much to the confusion of locals. Discriminating against people who are vaccinated, there's, there's no actual underlying justification or reason to need to do that. But it's not illegal. Culture war. <coughs> Should we move on? Move on? Yeah, well, it's just becoming more and more ridiculous, isn't it, basically? The divide between people and what people... That's what the game is. It's what the game always is. Mm. Right, left. Mm -hmm. Left wing, right wing. Same fucking bird. Divide (laughs) and conquer. Yeah. That's what it's all about. It's like, uh, I think it was Zach Topia sent us this story from South Australia. Uh And, like, the anti... I don't want to say anti-vaxxers, but the people who are sceptical about the COVID vaccine are replying to this post of this guy who's banning people who are vaccinated and saying, well, you know, they're saying that's a good thing. Mm. And I'm thinking, well, no, this isn't a good thing. This is playing into the hands. This is what we shouldn't be doing. We shouldn't be discriminating against people based on a medical procedure one way or the other because it's a fucking foundational principle. Do you think the owner of that shop has has made that decision based on principles around vaccination, or just as a way to drum up business for his uh, for whatever he's selling gigantic things? Gigantic sign, wasn't it? He might have a completely <laughs> rational rational explanation. If you get vaccinated, apparently it lowers your symptoms, but it doesn't stop you spe- uh, spreading the disease. So you have all these people who are vaccinated wandering yeah. around thinking they're immune, mm-hmm. spreading the disease. Maybe, maybe that's his his argument. Hmm? I don't know. I don't know if I agree with. It. I think they're all a fucking dud, to be honest. All the vaccines, the COVID vaccines. Um, I don't think it matters. I think the vax passport is a complete waste of time, principle or not. But that's just what I think. Um, but I just don't agree with discriminating against people no, on things like this. What's next? No Irish. No dogs. That's what it used to be. Do we really want to go back down that road? No. No. So fucking quit it. Jacinda, stop making second, being gleefully Mm. (laughs) affirmative that you're creating a second class citizen. You know, it's just not on. But Mm. I think it's a lot of it's just coercion to make them get the stuff. Yeah. And, you know, I don't know. I just think it's a crock of shit. (laughs) It doesn't help that she's because I'm literally a communist. <laughs> no, doesn't help. Um, fact checkers. Should we go on to fact checkers? <laughs> you heard of factcheck.org? Something about that. It's like oh. Snopes. Yeah, but it's one of these more recent things that's come up uh, for debunking anti-vaxxers and stuff. <coughs> yeah, whenever, you post, uh, whenever I post anything like from a peer-reviewed paper on Instagram and I get a fact check warning or something... COVID, go to the NHS.gov website or whatever fucking nonsense. 
Mm-hmm. This uh, lacks context or whatever. Mm-hmm. Anyway, the fact checkers have, have gone in trouble. Good. Facebook's independent fact checker may not be so independent after all. A US congressman has questioned the impartiality of factcheck.org, which is supposed to tackle vaccine disinformation because it's indirectly funded by jab manufacturer Johnson & Johnson. <laughs> Who pays? Shock horror. Like, we didn't already fucking know this. Conflict of interest. Well, yeah. the big pharmaceuticals own everything. They own the media, they own these fuckers. It's the paychecks of the fact-checkers. The vaccine fact-checkers at factcheck.org, who claim to be independent, are funded by an organisation that holds over $1.8 billion of stocks in a vaccine company and is run by a former director of the Centres for Disease Control. <laughs> it's like them as well. Like the, the, the CDC and the FDA and the... Board members of pharmaceutical companies, they're a revolving door. Yeah, just, just go around right in around. fucking circles. Yeah. It's the same with the financial regulators, mm. the central banks, and the big banking firms. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a joke. Mm. But anyway, it's been a bad couple of weeks for Johnson & Johnson. Is it? Yeah, because uh, I've got some... Oh, it's this US veterans study. I don't know if you heard about this. It came out about 10 days ago. No. They, did, um, they were comparing vaccine efficiency over time using the U.S. Veterans Database, which is huge because they have such a massive military-industrial complex. Mm-hmm. Over 600,000 people, I think it's about 2.7% of the U.S. population, uh, are veterans. Oh, wow. And they, um, they did some tests of uh, vaccine efficiency over six months from March to August. Uh, it was published Thursday. Uh, infection, uh, vaccine effectiveness against infection. Um, the researchers found that among the 600,000 veterans, PTO, 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 uh, J&J's vaccine protection fell from 88% in March to what in August? Oh, um, 27, uh, 13. Three. <laughs> oh, I was ten percent out. Three percent in six months. Wow. Yeah, it's a fucking turd. Are they, are they just testing for antibodies? Oh, I don't want to get into. No, nope, no nope, PCR positives. <laughs> right. Okay. So they weren't because that's why I thought. Well, maybe the because the pharmaceutical companies have been using this measure of immunity as antibodies, which is a nonsense. Yeah. Which they know. Yeah, they know. Which the regulators know. We have B cells. We have T cells. We have memory cells. Antibodies isn't a measure of fucking immunity. I'm a fucking retard, and I know this, <laughs> but these idiots in the media tell us that this is what confers immunity. Fucking antibody measurements. Fuck off. Nonsense. Right, no, they did it with... P- so that's what I thought. Yeah. So you yeah. go to it, they do it with confirmed PCR tests. Symptomatic. Yeah, 88% to three in six months. The Johnson & Johnson was the one and done. Uh. One and done. No. Guess not. No. Go back to it, baby, baby, baby paddy. I wonder if they, if they measured it during the six months as well. As far as I know, it was just the beginning and the end. And they didn't measure in between <coughs> because, I mean, it seems that six months is, isn't soon enough to get a booster if you're on Johnson & Johnson. It goes down to three. Mm. Maybe you should just have one every month. <laughs> get an IV, a permanent IV. Yeah, it's a fucking joke. It's a sham. It's a, it's a scam. That's what it is. Yeah. 
you know. Seems that way. I think I've started seeing those fact check things, you know, under um, climate. The ones, the ones J&J pay for? No, the ones that, yeah, well, <laughs> I assume this, these are a different ones, but um, they're under, like, anything to do with climate or COP26 or anything yeah. that's, that's around there. It says, oh, this post references climate change. Click on this link to... Anything who anyone who, who says anything against milks. the mainstream narrative is immediately fact checked. Mm. So the worrying thing about the J and J is that is the ad, ad, adenovirus vaccine, the same as the AstraZeneca one, which is the one we've used, the chimpy one. Yeah, chimp. Yes. So I mean, I guess most uh, everyone had two doses of AZ. Mm-hmm. So. Uh, Maybe two's better than one, you know. But it's you know if if the other adenovirus vaccine is such a turd as the J and J, it makes you worry, uh, concerned that we could be heading for a fall because we relied heavily on the AZ. Well, I mean, maybe this is why they've been so keen to roll, roll out the boosters because they know it's, it's it's shit and they need to mm-hmm. be preemptive before the winter comes and uh, give people a boost. That's what he said that. Nice if they said that. Just said, ah, we got it wrong. No, that's not going to happen, is it? No. No, not until they're all dead and in the ground. <laughs> There'll be some sort of... Uh, that's what they used to do with... Um, there was something... Oh, Royal Wills. So Royal Wills, they get locked up in a safe. Like uh, Prince Philip's. Right. It can't be opened, I think, in, um, for another uh, 110 years. Right. Something daft like that. Okay. So everyone's dead. Everyone, you know, is out of the way and dead. So you can't have any arguments over it. Over who gets what. There's some guy whose his, his job is to, like, look after the royal wills. What a job, though. That's fine. Hell yeah, what a cool job. I love that. Pretty pretty boring. I mean, uh, sounds get lovely. on with other stuff. Imagine the amount of Netflix you could watch. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Daily Mail sidebar action. <laughs> Sudoku champ. Yeah. You would think, wouldn't you? Yeah. Uh, related to the clampdown in free speech oh. and uh, online censorship, um, Twitter pylons, cancel culture, yeah. all this stuff that's emerged over the last five years or so. David Starkey was back on the airwaves. <laughs> story. Has he been rehabilitated? No, he was on talk radio. Oh, wow. oh fuck. Um, you say it, airwaves. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> he, was, he was on a podcast, wasn't he? With Darren Grimes about what a year ago, yeah, when he made those sort of, um, what's it like, um, not uns- what's the word? Anti-Semitic? Of, uh, was it? No, no, it's about slavery. Oh. Just sort of, it's the way he says things. It can it can come across very dis- distastefully, snarky. Yeah. yeah, and that's just who he is. But anyway, he was back on Talk Sport, uh, Talk Radio. Sorry. And he was highlighting, I just pulled this clip because he starts off highlighting the dangers around this stuff, the online censorship and stuff. Mm. Um, but he makes an incredibly, incredible point at the end, which bared repeating, I felt, if I can find it. And it's sort of, at the moment, it's very easy to sound alarmist, and I don't like doing so, but I think we do need to sound the alarm. There's a risk that we are 
got a Chinese virus and we will finish up with a Chinese society. There is this appetite to shut down. The moment somebody has got the right to stop you saying something because they might be hurt, because a little point of their very tender anatomy might be dented, this is insane. We have to have a robust public culture. This doesn't mean yelling insults. I've never yelled insults. I would never dream of doing so. But we should have the opportunity Mm. to have frank and free interchange. Democracy depends on it. Science depends on it. All knowledge and progress depends on it. This is is the bit that made my ears pricked up. Because there's a very simple point. All progress is made by heretics. It's by people who don't accept what they're told. That's a great point. I mean, in terms... That's a good point. Mm-hmm. That's a danger when you shut down, when you have such a hardcore orthodoxy that's driven <clears throat> forward, isn't it? And there's no room for uh, dissent. Mm-hmm. It's great for politicians, not so good for the rest of us. Mm. So what you're saying is, Jim Davidson back on tour in 2022. <laughs> Absolutely, <yeah. laughs> And David Starkey is a member of the uh, LGDP, uh, LGT, LBG. He's, a, he's, he's one of them, isn't he? <laughs> I think he might be gay, yeah. L or. No, it won't be L then. A G? I think he's an OG, yeah. Judging <laughs> <laughs> by the age of him. An OGG? Yeah. He's from Round Our Parts, I think. Is, is he? he? From, is he from Accrington? Is he? He's from, Never. He's from the northwest. Never. He's, yeah, absolutely. I want to say Oldham. I think he's from Oldham. Let's get him on a local podcast. I'd, I'd have David Starkey at any day of the week. I'll just fact check that. You're going to look for uh, David Starkey hometown. Starkey. Going to ask uh, what, what's the Samsung one? <laughs> no one knows. Big Spear. Big Spear. <laughs> <laughs> Ask Bigsby where David Starkey comes from. Ask Meta something. <laughs> Chest feeding. Kendall. 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 He tended Kendall. Uh... Oh, that's not where he was oh, born. No, no. no, he's from a more of a closer to a city, I think. That was probably a grammar school. Kendall Grammar School, maybe. It was, yeah. 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 Same. He was born on his Wikipedia. Maybe he just landed. Yeah. Just arrived. Time of arrival. <laughs> arrived in a servitor. Yeah. yeah. An old friend is here. How long does it take you to Google things? You used to mock Ben for how long he used to take to Google things. You can't Google a simple thing. Was born... David Starkey's hometown. In Kendall, Westmoreland. All right, there you go then. Confirmed. Nice. Confirmed kill. Are we not going to get fact checked for that? Well, it's, on it's on Wikipedia and everything on Wikipedia is correct. <laughs> <laughs> I've never come across anything false on Wikipedia. No. Oh, Jesus Christ. <laughs> uh, some good news on on the psychedelic front, possibly in the offing. Yes. Uh, Conservative MP Crispin Blunt. Oh, right, yeah. Uh, it's been calling on Boris Johnson to consider removing the barriers to psychedelic research. We've got a clip from the House. Um, Mr Speaker, knowing my right honourable friend's commitment to UK bioscience and his understanding of the exciting potential for improving mental health treatments for conditions such as depression, trauma and addiction, will he cut through the current barriers to research into psilocybin and similar compounds so the British public receive and British science research 
and British pharmaceutical companies enable the potential treatments into these most debilitating conditions to be delivered at the earliest possible opportunity. Prime Minister. I, I thank my friend I know who has a very active interest in this, in this area. What I can say to him is that we will consider the Advisory Council on the Misuse of Drugs uh, recent advice on, on reducing barriers to research uh, with uh, controlled drugs such as the one he uh, describes and we'll be... Excellent. Getting back to him as soon as possible. Why would there be barriers to research on... Because uh, it's Class A, isn't it? Why, why would that be a barrier to research? I, I don't know, but it is. Apparently, it's good. It's, for some reason, I, I half read it. I think I read it, but then I can't remember what it was. And he said that if it gets reclassified as a band B, then it's easier or something. That would be like medical marijuana. Yeah, you still need yeah. a license for controlled drugs. Like marijuana, mm. even in research. Right. So, can you, so what's the barrier to psilocybin? Can you not get a license to research psilocybin in the UK? Depends if psilocybin itself, and it probably is. You can check on the online whether that uh, substance is is listed as the the controlled agent, or it's just because the the law was always preparation of mushrooms. I remember from <laughs> from university that you were you weren't allowed to dry mushrooms, but you could, you know, you could have them. I guess about your person in a picked state. I might be wrong. It's quite absurd, isn't it? That's something that grows out of the ground. Mm-hmm. Once you pick it and stick it in an urine cupboard, you you could you can go down for five stretch. Yeah, it's pretty pretty strange that. I can't see why there would be need for any barriers to research of not any substance, but certainly a natural substance. Why would there be any barrier to research? I I totally agree with you. There shouldn't be any barrier to research, but there must be an industry associated with, with getting these licenses. And if you recall that the UK are the largest manufacturer grower of medicinal cannabis in the world, I think, still. And it's is it still... Um, really? What's his name? May... Uh, Mr. May, <laughs> James May, <laughs> Theresa May's husband is the is the overlord of the UK cannabis oh, okay. supply. So there's going to be kingpin. In answer to your question, Phil, it's all about money. Yeah, yeah. All of it is about money. <clears throat> I wonder if there is certain companies who would lobby against research against and. Uh, for psychedelics, seeing as that they're natural substance and they can't be patented. Oh yeah, loads. And whoever's whoever's like, currently I, making say, um, SSRIs. Yeah, yeah, probably would, wouldn't you? Protect your. Hey, if I worked for like Pfizer, I wouldn't want this stuff uh, being looked into. No, I want to. I want to sell SSRIs. Would you, if you were Pfizer, would you want you to be the only person able to look at this stuff? And I'm going into wacky conspiracy theory territory here, so hold on. Would you then find that they were ineffective and then just end the research? So we f- we found that these aren't as good as SSRI, so keep chomping down the pills. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Uh, why would you bother? Just to eliminate quote-unquote doubt and try and stop anyone else from finding otherwise. I'm just going to end the conspiracy section here. <laughs> 
Uh, would you be able to? Well, no. If if you if you if you do some trials and say, oh no, we've not found any evidence of eff- efficacy against PTSD or whatever, that's not the end of the story. Science it, doesn't end, does it? No, it absolutely shouldn't end. But if you're the only one with a license to do that research, then it becomes incredibly difficult for someone to prove otherwise. All oh, right, but how does Pfizer uh, become the only company that has a license? I don't, I don't know. Lobbying. Uh, yeah, paying people off. Yeah. I don't know. That seems like a a, a proper gangster move. I think <laughs> it was. It was in the conspiracy section. Yeah, I think they're too clever. I think they're too um, sly. They do stuff like that. It's too. It's too overt. It is overt. It's too overt. I would say. I don't know. If if I had the um, equipment to research this, I would like to. But oh. fucking vegan. Exactly, right? Yeah. Can I say? Can you eat mushrooms if you're vegan? Oh, yeah. But hang on. Why? Grey area. <laughs> Why wouldn't you? Well, what are they? They're a not living, a vegetable, are they? Well, vegetables are living organism, I guess. The mycelium it. networks. Are they not sentient? Well... <clears throat> If we, if you were listening to the Peter McCoy podcast, you would know that quite a lot, most things that grow on the planet have a symbiotic relationship with a fungus. I think if you were if you were vegan and worried about that, you'd probably be also worried about the amount of buccal cells in your saliva that you swallow every uh, every time you you know do anything. Yeah, you'd be too busy. Chest feeding. And end up... Disqualified! I mean... From vegan high. Yeah. I had a vegan meal today. What was it? I I just didn't have lunch. (laughs) (laughs) I had a beige buffet. (laughs) I bet you feel lovely. It's all right, I've washed it down. (laughs) Yeah. Lager, I've not drunk lager for ages. Nice. I've had a few lagers today. Yeah. Oh, I thought you had a chicken sandwich. So I'm serving out of times. I didn't know what a beige buffet was. <laughs> oh, a beige buffet, Ben, is just like sandwiches, crisps, sausage yeah. rolls. Sausage rolls. Everything's beige on meat, the table. Meat pie. Yeah. She went to Aldi and got some. Uh, a beige platte. 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 <laughs> oh, you, you speak French too? Yeah. Uh, platte, yeah. <laughs> a beige platte. Duck uh, spring rolls. Ooh, Ooh, come on, exotic. Well, exotic beige. <laughs> and uh, vegetable spring rolls. And they had some chicken parcels. Yeah. They were Ooh, like nice. little pyramids. Pyramids of phyllo pastry. Like yeah, one tons. Yeah. Oh, were they samosas? No. They were pyramids. They were pyramids. <laughs> I got some dumplings once. I won't get them again. Stodgy. They were just a bit like glue. I suppose. I don't know. They're weird. That's why I imagine those steamed buns are like, you know, the bao Chinese buns with meat in. That's what it was. Oh, is that right? Okay. Yeah. It yeah, was, yeah. I wouldn't, I wouldn't want it again. No. It made me, uh, yeah. But you know, it may have just been that particular place. We didn't even open the quiche. <sighs> well, quiche is heavy oh, on yeah. a beige buffet. It was black label. <laughs> Ooh. Carly. It had bacon and ham on, ham on it. Bacon and ham. <laughs> One or the other. The whole red, 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 oh. red meat. Red meat. <laughs> processed as much processed <laughs> yeah. food as possible. But it's, uh, 
I, she said, I'm going to put that back in the fridge. We've got too much. So I'm dining out tonight. Oh, no. After can eat an entire quiche to yourself. I might murder it, yeah. Oh, oh no. God, no. Cold. Are you going to warm it up? It's in the fridge. Yeah, no, but you can warm them up, you know, in Why? the oven. Why? And have a warm quiche. <laughs> It's like an omelette, isn't it? Well, yeah. Uh, no, but I'm, I'm out. Uh, uh, I don't. I'm not particular. I mean, I can eat a I quiche. I think quiche should be like quiche cake, cheesecake. No, quiche is is just wrong. <laughs> I mean, so many levels. I can eat it. I can eat it, but it, you know, it's not like it's not even in the top ten of of the beige buffet. No, it's a, a special treat. You know, I got, <laughs> exactly. That's what I mean. But you're saying that it's nice. It's not. I got some giant pork pies as well. Uh, Which ones? Was a jelly. Black, black label. Black label. Pork. Did you eat one of those to yourself? Still in fridge, man. No, <laughs> oh, no. Give the family the shit little Melton Mulberry one. Keep them there for me. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. It's just, you probably had cut one up. Know. How many did you buy? <laughs> well, this is the problem when I go shopping, you see. Yeah, you, well, you to, need at least three types of pork pie. Yeah. Going, end up going to Aldi and spending over a hundred pounds. Yeah, well, that's, that's a tough. It's not gig. possible. I didn't think it was possible, but it is. We were frequently getting up to nearly ninety pounds a week at uh, yeah, Aldi. We? Yeah, um, is it all booze? <laughs> I don't know how. Just but panettone, <laughs> panettone. I've uh, taken over the reins of, of the shop, and I'm getting it down. Spout sixty six seventy now. Yeah, that's that's what we pay usually. Mm. A good week is like fifty-seven, <laughs> yeah. and then a shit week is like seventy-three. I'm sure that not so long ago it was like in the forties to go shop to the weekly shop yeah. at Aldi. Maybe yeah, like definitely. ten years ago. <laughs> oh, just wait till next year, man. <laughs> oh yeah. We're in inflation, in Haitian, in Haitian, in Haitian, it's five percent. Yeah. It's coming. Ugh. I work at the theatre. <laughs> Not looking forward to that. <laughs> no. uh, fix fix your mortgages now if you can. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Fuck's sake. Yeah, it's going up, man. Oh, well. uh, they've already put them up. So the budget was on Wednesday, uh-huh. and uh, the next day, mortgage lenders started putting rates up. Fuck's sake. To a third of a percent. <laughs> Bank of England hasn't moved. No, I know. Yeah. Well, they've done it preemptively. Yeah, I know. The uh, House always wins. Thanks, <laughs> <laughs> hey, Should we move on? Does, some yeah. more drugs. Yeah. Luxembourg. Luxembourg is set to become the first European nation to legalise the growing use of cannabis. Oh. The government announced in a statement on Friday, under the new legislation, adults over 18 in Luxembourg will be allowed to use cannabis and to grow up to four plants per household. Which isn't a lot, is it? It's enough. Probably. <laughs> Depends. Depends how much you chong. Depends how big your plants are. You, you can get. <laughs> well, yeah. Uh, which would make it the first country in Europe to fully legalise the production and consumption of the drug. Consuming cannabis in public, however, will remain illegal. Mm-hmm. Trading seeds would also be permitted under the new legislation with no limits on the quantity or levels of tetrahydrocannabinol. I'm nailed it. A hundred percent sure you could, you used to be able to buy seeds from um, Willie Banjo's, Willie Banjo's, and yeah. that place in Manchester, Herman's, yeah. Doctor Herman's. The change of policy is an attempt by the government to crack down on drug-related crime. 
mm. and the black market drugs trade. Good. Ministers will now be able to regulate the currently illegal cannabis market. Newsflash, prohibition doesn't work. No, it doesn't, does it? We know this. Yeah. Don't want to go back to the first... Do you remember the first the story of the first prohibition? Um, Something to do with Al Capone? Thou shalt not... Al Capone. Thou shalt not eat of the, f- the forbidden fruit. Oh, yeah. Oh, right, okay, yeah. Thou shalt not eat of the tree of good and knowledge. Yeah. Good and knowledge. I'm several beers in. <laughs> Thou shalt not eat the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Okay. That was the first prohibition. Exactly, yeah. Oh, the, this fruit. <laughs> yeah. Who was the big fucking cop in the sky? <laughs> All these trees look the same. <laughs> God, how many people did he have to watch? Two. Two? <laughs> Didn't fucking work, did it? Prohibition does was, not work. Was it not a snake, though? Was it a snake or was it a dragon? Uh, well, oh, I dragon. thought it was a snake from school. Well, the Bible says a serpent. Yeah. Right? Right. <laughs> yeah, and how does God punish the serpent? It removes its limbs. You crawl on its belly or something. Sliver on your belly. So was it a serpent or was it a dragon? Its legs so it was a crocodile, then? <laughs> well, I would say dragon. <laughs> because you know, I'm House Targaryen. I mean, been a dude. If it had <laughs> in a dragon suit, it's Barney. It's Barney the dinosaur. Well, I mean, if it had wings, you could remove its legs, and then, like when it was on the ground, if I had <laughs> wings, I would fly. <laughs> so I contemplate a glance in the cut and I see my homie Nate. Sixteen. <laughs> 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 I muscle memory. <laughs> Sorry, what were you saying? I, 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 I drifted off when you said. Uh, Doesn't matter. Regulate. Doesn't matter. I can't have children with a whore. Come on. What's Maybe. the next one? Well, Wasserberg. Yeah. Is that it? Are we finished? Police station evacuated after grenade handed in at front desk. Yeah. Police station was evacuated and surrounding streets temporarily closed off. After someone turned up at the front desk to hand over a grenade, bomb squad investigators sealed off Pontybrid Police Station after a member of the public attempted to hand in a suspected World War II ordnance on Thursday. Queues were reported on Burr Road, where the station is located. After it was closed in both directions, they were later given the go-ahead to reopen once the device was con- confirmed safe at 4:45. South Wales Police said in a statement. We can confirm that roads in Pontypridd have what now re- fuck? Have, have now reopened, and the safety perimeter around Pontypridd Police Station has been slowed down. <laughs> the ordinance has been confirmed safe. We appreciate this cause. <laughs> oh, you massive racist! <laughs> this caused some disruption, but we had to ensure the safety of the public. Kind of just got into like a Caribbean. Kind of, yeah. That was the worst. The the and that's that's in Jamaica. (laughs) That's the worst one you've done. It's not like I practice these. (laughs) It's just riffing. It's for entertainment purposes only. I know. Yeah. It's not. It's not factual. Like a judgment (laughs) day and terminating. Uh, I was entertained. Yeah. Um, Rockstar Games are, are releasing a GTA trilogy. Have you seen? I have. Yeah. yeah. Remastered Vice City. 
Okay. Um, San Andreas and yeah. uh, GTA 3. The first one that was... GTA 3, yeah. 3D. Yeah. Right, okay. You watched the trailer on YouTube. Okay. Blowing mind. Yeah. What? You, you played them. You played San Andreas. I remember you playing that. I played all of them, yeah. Yeah, even GTA 1 and 2, like the top down. Yeah, played those. And uh, the latest one that's still like, they just do um, heists yeah, for... GTA 5. Is that the one where you're Eastern European? Which one was that? I can't remember. It was like you, you bust out of jail at the beginning, I think, or something. And then uh, then I gave up with that one. My wife played it to the end. Wow. Commitment. She's mm. more into Red Dead, isn't she? She has played it. I don't think she's finished it. I can't remember. Fair I think enough. she might, in fact, I think she got TB. <laughs> and it's like a slow death sentence while she played the game. <laughs> nice. nice. A dog holiday. Yeah. Yeah, oh, so you every so often you just pass out, and then that's it. You wake up randomly. People have like robbed you and stuff. Oh, it's probably yeah. That is a slow death. Not like working on a film with uh, Alec, Alec, Alec Baldwin. It's just instant death. Yeah. <laughs> I know. Yeah. <coughs> What's the latest? Have you heard any latest on that? You don't know how the live round got in there, but. Oh, how did that get in there? Oh, there was, you know, I feel really bad for for Alec Baldwin, really. Really? Yeah, he didn't put it in there, as far as I'm aware. We don't know. Apparently, um, so I, this is something I've read, I don't know how true it is, that um, they were, some members of the crew were shooting tin cans on the set <sighs> with live rounds. Oh, really? And then, I don't know if it was the same gun or whatever. So there were, so there's, there's rumours that there were live rounds on set. Mm. And then she was, she's the, she was the cinematographer, wasn't she? So she was like setting up the shot or whatever, and making it look right. So he thought. So the guy apparently, this is in the court papers. The guy gave him the gun. I don't know if it was an armorer or an assistant director or something. I can't remember. They said they say something like um, it's not live or it's like a set phrase. It's not that, but and gave it him, and obviously she was stood behind the camera and it was to test the the shot apparently, and he shot and it was she shot at her yeah, yeah at the, the camera the shot was like at the camera like a shot of the gun yeah. firing and how did the other guy get injured? He was stood behind her. Because he was the director, wasn't he? So he's also looking at the shot on the monitor, I guess. Yeah. Um, and then he's fired the gun, and it's uh, gone in through her and then into his shoulder. I think. I don't know enough about it. I don't know whether it was blank. Was was it meant to be a blank? Yeah, yeah it would have been. Yeah. Because there's difference. There's prop guns and there's blanks. Yeah. So it's a real. So like, it was a real. They are. They were real guns, but firing blanks. Yeah. Right. Because that's what happened with Brandon Lee. Yeah. That was a real gun that fired... Um, a shell, wasn't it? Well, the first... The second shot was a blank. There's another thing they do where um, they take out part of the gunpowder. I can't remember. All right. So it doesn't fire the projectile. It's when you're doing a close-up on the gun and you need to see a bullet in the gun ah, right, and right. a revolver. So they can use an actual casing mm-hmm. with a bullet in it mm-hmm. With this, it's like the charge is taken out. Mm-hmm. So he fired that one. The actual bullet was lodged in the barrel. Then they loaded it with a blank, 
and then the blank fired the bullet into Brandon oh, Lee. Shit. It was like a that effort. Yeah, the crow, so, on, the crow. on the crow, yeah. So I don't know what happened with this these two people. I had a guy on Radio 2 who was like a armourer on films and said, you never point guns, dummy or not, at anyone on set. They always no. have screens on in, in front. Right. But I don't know. It won't have anything to do with her husband. What's this? Hey. <laughs> the lawyer? What? The, the Clinton Epstein uh, connected oh, lawyer who was her husband. A cinematographer? Yeah. I've not heard that. Oh, no. That's not a thing that's come out. It's a conspiracy out, angle it? coming out. <laughs> it's not, well, no, that's a fact. So her husband, who's still alive, is... He's a lawyer who works for a number of uh, firms representing people like Hillary Clinton and tied to all that. But I suppose he could just... Could he not just work for a giant... Multinational law firm? Absolutely. (laughs) Yeah. And what's very sad, actually, is that they have a a, a young son, don't they? Yeah. Oh, it's shit. Someone's Mm. died. Yeah. Is it gross incompetence? Or what? We don't know. It's a bit... I mean, yeah, I mean, I don't think there needs to be live rounds, does there, on set? No, there doesn't need to be... Guns? Almost guns, yeah. yeah. The CGI is so good that you don't fucking... I don't no, look yeah. at a film and go, ah, that's not a Magnum 357. <laughs> From what I heard, it was cost-cutting. Yeah. yeah. And that, that falls on the producer. And yeah. that's him, isn't it? That's Alec Baldwin, yeah. So, I mean, the other thing as well is it, it was very likely to not have a very good budget. You know, because it's Alec Baldwin, unfortunately. Yeah, it's a complete clusterfuck, isn't it? Mm. And it's uh, sad. It's it sad. is. So, hopefully someone will get to the bottom of it. Yeah. Um, Bristol Rovers. Is he Bristol Rovers manager? Joey Barton. Joey Barton, yeah. He had a bit of a shocker in a post-match press conference this week. Good, yeah. Yeah, interesting analogy. Difficult, I said to the lads uh, during the week. You know, the, the team's almost like musical chairs. You know, someone gets in and does well, but then gets suspended. Someone gets in and does well, gets injured. Someone gets in, does well for a game, and then has a, a, a holocaust, a nightmare, you know, an absolute disaster. Has a holocaust? <laughs> they even, uh... even using it in like context. No, it's not the right context. That's a, re- it's a really bad game. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> when you have a holocaust, isn't it? Yeah. Christ. Not just a shocker. Is he just misunderstanding the term Holocaust? I don't know. I don't know what he was trying to say. Horror show? Yeah, probably. Horror, Horror show, show sounds... Sense. Yeah. Having a Holocaust. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Anyway. Fuck off. Yeah. Should we go? Yeah. Yeah, I've got a request for the uh, the eavesdroppers. Oh, here we go. So, uh, in a week's time, we will have a new addition to the family, um, the Amish Ben family, uh, and we need a name for her. It's a, it's a clone. It's a, <laughs> a female youngling. <laughs> um, so, if you want to name our our um, our new dog, uh, please um, send us a message on Discord. And uh, I'll read them, and I'll consider them, and then probably throw them in. Yeah, I vote Holocaust. <laughs> it's it's got two syllables. Holly, no, it's not Holly for sure. <laughs> Holly the Holocaust. Yeah, I'm after a two syllable name. Holly Holocaust. Holly's 
all right, but it's got connotations now, so we won't be using it. <laughs> about uh, Genghis? It's a female, but I suppose that doesn't matter. I think uh, <laughs> I think Genghis is uh, metrosexual, no? Bigendered? Well, um, yeah, probably. It's a bit close to gingivitis. <clears throat> about Kato? Kato's <laughs> quite a good name, I like it. <laughs> It's a bit similar to another name, though, which might be confusing in your household. You need to think yeah. of something else. What about Pliny? The elder or the younger? The dog. <laughs> the dog. Pliny the dog. Pliny. Pliny. It doesn't roll off the tongue enough. It's got to be two Pliny. syllables. Pliny. Nero. Nero. It's, it's too male. Like kind of dog, yeah. Titus. That's male. Tiberius. Ves- Vespasian. Vesper is quite a nice name. Vesper. <laughs> yeah. That's off Bond, isn't it? It is. Oh, yeah. Isn't it not? <laughs> isn't it not? Take <laughs> me to Gimli. Oh! oh as long as yeah? I as long as I don't turn into... Uh, who's the guy at Roger Waters? That's my main concern. <laughs> From Pink Floyd. <laughs> With Roger Waters. We don't need no education. I don't think you need to worry. (laughs) (laughs) Right, a two-syllable name. I'll get my thinking caps on. Yeah, bring it. Bring forth the names. We'll we'll talk about them and discuss them next week. From uh, classical history. Yeah. Galba. 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 Quite masculine. They're quite masculine. The Roman... The Roman... uh, Cognomens. Cognomens. Would they be cognomens? Pronomen, nomen, cognomen. Gaius, Julius, Caesar. So Gaius was the prenomen. Gaius, Julius was the nomen, so the house name. And then Caesar was the cognomen, the third part. And if you're you're a lady in ancient Rome, (laughs) you were given the feminine version of the nomen. Like Julia. Yes. Got one right. Julius Caesar, his sister, his daughter, they're all called Julia. They were they were named after the house. <laughs> Julia. You, you didn't have a Christian name. <laughs> you were Julia because you belonged to the house Julia the Julias. Mm. Yeah. What, were they, 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 what they, were they called going up? They were given pet names. Because so <laughs> if you have four four daughters, they're all called Julia. Right, yeah. So it'd be Julia the Elder, Julia the Younger, Julia the Lanky. <laughs> the middle eh? <laughs> yeah. Julia the Unwanted. Right, okay. Yeah. So your pre-nomen, like Gaius, there was only a handful of popular ones. Gaius, Marcus, um, <laughs> blanking. And then the third name, the cognomen, was like almost like a nickname. Right, okay. So um, Caesar. It was, like a, it was more like related, more individual in that matter. Why the fuck are we talking? I thought we were going. Oh, man. Yeah, we're doing Greeks and Romans tonight. I know, oh, yeah. we're doing Greeks in a minute. Right. <laughs> Speaking of the Romans. Are you not entertained? Are you not entertained? Fuck off. All right, we'll be back next week. Yeah. Uh, if you want to find out who's coming next week, join the Discord. Yeah. You'll, you'll find out on Monday. For real revealed. I want to know. <laughs> Wakanda forever. Epstein didn't. Epstein, him and Epstein. Where's <laughs> Javelin? I work at the theatre now. He don't give a fuck. He don't give a fuck. That is an excellent question. Well, he's dead, so, uh, you know, in general, you always have to be careful. Oh. Oh.
I look like a war-hardened goblin. I like what you got. Good job. ISIS attempting to create a caliphate. You know what? You're a real wanker. Cut off your genitals, gouge out your eyes, die. Boot your teacher out of Wayne Kerr. Cut a grape. I'll lead an effective strategy to mobilize true international depression. Save Plotland. Holy smack balls.